Last week, we introduced you to the uh, Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election, according to which God chooses from eternity past who it is that will be saved and, and who will not. And we asked whether or not it, that doctrine, in that doctrine, unconditional election is arbitrary. But we didn't discuss whether or not it's true. That's what we'll be discussing today. Is unconditional election biblical? This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Sorry for stumbling over my words so much. I'm trying to... Uh to do this simulation of the way I see a lot of YouTube shows start, where there's a very short, you know, intro um, saying what the episode's going to be about, and then there's the opening music and video, and then we get into the the content proper. And I'm trying to make that transition at the beginning smooth. Uh, hopefully, starting next week, it'll be a little bit smoother. I was a little. Uh, I don't know, stumbling over my words for, for one reason or another. Um, for those of you who, for one reason or another, are here for the first time, thank you so much for tuning in to Theopologetics. Theopologetics is a combination of the words theology, the first four letters of it, and the word apologetics, all but the first letter of it. Uh, Theopologetics slam together, and we talk about uh, a variety of things related to theology and apologetics. This used to be an audio-only po podcast a number of years ago, but after several years of a break, uh, we are resurrecting the show as a live YouTube show um, every other week, Mondays, alternating Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific. So that's where you are today, and as I mentioned in the introduction, today we'll be discussing the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. And I'm going to have a guest on. I've already pre-recorded this interview because he couldn't, um, his schedule is such that he couldn't do it live. Um, but he's got some notes that he has made available for you watching uh, for you watching if you want to be able to follow along with his um, thought processes, uh, some of the issues of grammar that we'll be discussing. And there'll be a lot more there than we'll cover in this interview. So if you are interested in those notes, I've included a link to them in the description of this YouTube video. And if somebody could let me know in the chat if they have any problems accessing that document, I'd appreciate it. Maybe I can uh, fix it here uh, very soon. Um, so, again, if you want to follow along, click on that link that's in the description of the video, uh, and that will allow you to dig more deeply. While you're testing that out, I've got a few uh, sort of announcement type stuff to make. First of all, uh, and this is really exciting for gamer nerds like me, uh, tomorrow pre-orders become available for the Xbox Series X. Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, the um, the last, the, the most recent generation of gaming consoles was the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4, if I'm not mistaken. And it's been several years since that generation of consoles was made available. And this holiday season, both PlayStation and Microsoft are coming out with their next generation consoles PlayStation of course the place or uh, Sony of course the PlayStation 5 and Microsoft the Xbox Series X um, pre-orders are they go on sale tomorrow and depending upon where you are in the world the time at which pre-orders become available will be uh, different so the only one I know is that on uh, in the US on um, 
it's tomorrow starting at 8 a.m. Pacific time, my time. Uh, you East Coasters, that I guess would be 11 a.m. Um, so if you're a gamer nerd like me and are interested in getting uh, a, a, the next generation console from Microsoft, make sure you pre-order tomorrow. And there's also a slimmer um, digital only uh, version of this same series called the Xbox Series S. Uh, but the downside of that is that it doesn't have as beefy of um, hardware uh, and stuff like that. So my recommendation is that you would get the Xbox Series X, but it is a bit of a price tag. It's, I think, $500 as compared to the $300, I think, for the Xbox Series S. Uh, but anyway, so I just wanted to mention that in case any of you like me are gamer nerds. I've been playing a really interesting game series on my Xbox One lately called Life is Strange. Um, and I just discovered uh, last night that after the first series of five episodes of that game, there's also a prequel of three episodes. And then there's a sequel to the original after that. And I'm just loving the franchise, so I'd encourage you to check that out. And I'm looking forward to seeing if that game company does anything with the next generation console. Uh, next quick announcement is that uh, several weeks ago, a couple of months ago, it looks like it was uh, July 31st, <laughs> time flies, uh, I was on my friend Isaiah, Isaiah Burridge's podcast called Depends on How You Look at It. You can find it at buzzsprout.com slash 12111588, but it's probably just easier to do a, uh, well, maybe it's easier to do a Google search for Depends on How You Look at It podcast, uh, but I'm not 100% certain that it is um, easily found in search results. But anyway, um, I was on that show um, a couple of months ago in July to discuss the uh, whether or not human beings have immaterial souls, uh, and if that's something you're interested in, you can check that out. Tomorrow, I will be joining Isaiah to record the next episode of his podcast on Matthew 24, the um, uh, the sermon on uh, the Olivet Discourse, the um, eschatological prophecy uh, sermon that Jesus delivered on the olive, uh, the Mount of Olives, and the famous verse is Matthew 24:34. This generation shall not pass before all these things take place. And many, maybe even most, at least American Christians, think that uh, Jesus is talking about either some future generation or a race of people or a kind of people. But I'll be joining Isaiah to talk about the perspective that I hold and that he holds, known as preterism, uh, not uh, not full preterism, which is a terrible way to put it, not not uh, not hyper preterism, that's the better way to put it, but rather orthodox preterism, historic preterism, what really ought to be just called preterism full stop, which is the view that most biblical end times prophecies, but not all of them, were fulfilled in the past, particularly in, the, uh, in and around the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Roman armies in 70 AD. So if you're, if you're not familiar with that view, um, if you assume that this generation shall not pass before all these things take place, as a reference to some future generation or a race or kind of people and you'd like to be challenged on that perspective, then be on the lookout for the next episode of Depends on How You Look at It podcast hosted by Isaiah Burridge in which I will, um, together with him, uh, challenge that uh, very typical American Christian perspective. Uh, next, I last week did a debate on the Trinity Radio YouTube channel. Trinity Radio is the um, the YouTube channel. Uh, it's youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. Braxton Hunter is the president of uh, the college uh, and seminary at which I am an adjunct professor, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. And Trinity Radio is the YouTube show, the official YouTube show for that uh, seminary. And again, you can go to youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter to go to their channel. 
but if you go to videos, you'll see that right here at the top, uh, third from most recent, I debated the relationship between Israel and the church with fellow adjunct professor Steve Gregg, and Braxton moderated. Uh, I think the debate went very well. I, I, Steve did a good job challenging my perspective, which is that there is no sense in which the church is Israel or the Israel is the church, but the church and Israel are distinct but overlapping entities. Uh, he challenged me pretty well, I think, but I also think that I challenged his perspective well, and I didn't find his case compelling. So if you want to um, check that debate out, then go to the Trinity Radio YouTube channel and give that a watch, and I'd love to hear from you, uh, you know, in terms of how you think we both did. Um... So, and then uh, speaking of Braxton Hunter, Braxton Hunter is was recently added to the lineup of plenary speakers at this year's Rethinking Hell conference. Uh, this will be in early November, November 6th and 7th, uh, if you can see it highlighted on the screen here. November 6th and 7th is just coming up in a, less than a couple of months in Federal Way, Washington, which is um, sort of a suburb of Seattle. And we have confirmed with the venue that the conference is still on and in person. We just have a limited availability. We have a, a limited number of seats that we can fill. Um, so if you haven't yet registered and you think you can be in the Seattle area on November 6th and 7th, I would encourage you to go to RethinkingHellConference.com. And even if you can't be in the Seattle area, go to that website because there is an online live streaming registration option for 10% of the normal ticket. Um, and you'll get to see excellent presentations by each of our plenary speakers, including Paul Copan. That was a coup getting him. Um, Dr. Braxton Hunter as well, the, the person I just mentioned a moment ago. Um, Clay Jones, formerly of Biola University, before they started requiring dispensational premillennialism, or at least premillennialism, um, on the part of their staff. Uh, Tim Barnett from Stand to Reason. There is a chance he won't be able to make it in person because as of last time I spoke with him, Canada, which is where he lives, um, had a travel ban. So he may be delivering remotely, not 100% sure yet, and that's why we added Braxton Hunter. So there will be four plenary speakers, uh, if, if not Tim, then, or at least four, uh, possibly five. And then, and of course, I'm uh, least and last. So, um, it's going to be a great conference. We're going to be talking about the relationship between apologetics and hell. And, and in case I, in case you don't know, I'm the only one of these five speakers that does not hold to the traditional view of hell as eternal torment. So um, don't think that if you come here, all you're going to be doing is hearing people uh, argue in support of a view of hell that you don't hold or something like that. No, you're going to be hearing from only one person that holds to something other than the traditional hell. Um, but uh, we're all we all consider each other brothers, and we'll be talking about how we as Christians together, who whatever view of hold we have. Uh, whatever view of hell we happen to hold, we can, how it is that we can address this apologetic problem of hell. So RethinkingHellConference.com, I'd love to see you there or uh, have you see us from afar via a live online streaming option. Finally, speaking of Rethinking Hell, this coming Friday, so just a four days away, at 4 a.m. Pacific Time on September 25th, the, and, and this, the reason it's 4 a.m. is because of what I'm about to say, I'll be delivering a lecture on the topic of hell remotely um, for the uh, South African Theological Seminary, sats.edu.za. Um, we're going, I'm going to be discussing uh, the traditional view of hell versus my view of hell, conditional immortality or annihilationism. My understanding is that this is free to register even if you're not a student at, at SATS. Um, so if you go to sats.edu.za slash live dash events slash rethinking dash hell or you might even be, you know what, you might even be able to just do a Google search for uh, South African Theological Seminary um, Chris Date 
And actually, you know what? Instead of Chris Date, do Rethinking Hell. That'll probably be, that'll get you there. Um, yeah, well, um, actually, now I'm having uh, a problem finding it. All right, well, in any event, uh, sats.edu.za slash live events slash rethinking dash hell and you can register online um, and it'll be available at some point in their youtube channel after the lecture um, so yeah hope you'll check that out and again i love to hear from you um, if you uh, have some thoughts on it after you've watched it i'd love to know what those are all right so with all those, those announcements out of the way um i've been a friend for a few years now with a fellow calvinist but uh somebody who holds to a different view than i do on israel and the nature of hell um his name is robert wiesner he's a graduate of dallas theological seminary um he is working on starting a phd at some point in the not too distant future and he is um a co-author of sorts uh of a series of articles that's coming out in the journal um that goes with the trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary called the Journal of the Ecclesia Scholar Society or Ecclesia Scholar Society. I'll have to ask how they pronounce that. But that's a journal and in an upcoming issue of their journal, um, Robert and I and a few others are uh, authors of a series of articles on the uh, nature of hell. Um, I I'm not sure if I ask him about it in this interview you're about to watch, so I'll just tell you now. Uh, it's a series of articles that present, each of which presents a case for one of the three major views of hell from the book of Revelation specifically. Um, I've got an article that will introduce the three articles uh, and sort of laying out the three views from an, a high view and and uh, from a you know high level and what it is that each of us agrees on and then me and a, a, a co-author and I William Tanksley and I will be writing uh, or we'll have an article in this series defending conditional immortality or annihilationism from revelation uh, a universalist um, scholar will be presenting a case for universalism from the book of revelation and Robert my guest today will be um, uh, discussing making a case for the doctrine of eternal torment uh, from the book of revelation so be on the lookout for that he's He's a fantastic scholar, uh, except on the issue, on the topic of hell. But on something that, we, so although we don't agree on the nature of hell, however, we are both Calvinists. And we also, um, in certain ways, have a view, have certain views related to Calvinism that aren't identical to what all other um, Calvinists happen to believe. Uh, so this might be a little bit interesting. You might um, discover some things that maybe you hadn't heard Calvinists affirm and deny before. But in any event, what we're going to be discussing in this episode that you're about to watch, this interview that you're about to watch, we're going to be looking at the uh, we're going to be looking at Romans nine, Romans chapter nine. We're going to be go going through it with a certain degree of um, you know uh, with, with a fine tooth comb, you know, in, in some detail, looking at the Greek and asking the question: Does Romans nine, or rather, I should say, to what extent does Romans nine support the Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election? As I said, this interview you're about to watch is pre-recorded, but I'm going to try to hang around in the chat and answer questions here and there. Um, I won't always be here at uh, at, at the screen, um, but hopefully I will be if you have questions. So feel free to interact and chat in the um, in the YouTube chat, and I will be back after um, this interview is over to bid you farewell. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right in. Here we go. All right, Robert. Um, uh, why don't you start by telling me and my viewers, well, you don't need to tell me this, I know I already know about you, but why don't you tell uh, viewers about yourself, um, who you are, uh, what your interest is in this topic, stuff like that. Sure. 
so uh, I'm a, a pastor, uh, Kenmore Baptist Church here in Kenmore, New York. I've been here for a couple years. That's what I do vocationally, but uh, I'm also very much a, uh, a Bible nerd. I try to envision my, my vocation as that, that pastor theologian uh, role. So eventually I plan to get around to, to doing a PhD uh, in New Testament. Uh, I, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary where I wrote my master's thesis on the Jewish background to Paul's uh, predestinarian language. And uh, uh, part of that thesis was published recently in the Westminster Theological Journal. Uh, so uh, readers who are interested in that, or listeners, I should say, could go back and uh, check that out. But um, I, it's continued to be an interest of mine since I, I first uh, was exposed to, to these texts, especially Romans 9, that, that seems so strongly to to emphasize the, the majesty and freedom of God and uh, our, our election, his choice of us, and uh, I've grown and, and become hopefully more nuanced and more biblical in my understanding of what's going on in Romans 9. It's a it's a difficult text, and I don't think either side should uh, try to say otherwise. We wouldn't be doing justice to it if we did. There are lots of problems and questions in, in the text, but uh, I, I do think its, it's big-picture message is pretty clear, and as we'll, we'll talk about today, when we, when we hone in on some of the, the grammar and the, the discourse features of the text, we can uh, get focused in on what was primary for Paul and his thought, and, and I think it's, it, it, it's a, a step you know, towards building a case for the idea of uh, unconditional election. Okay. Um, what is, you used the word, the, the language of first encountering a, a minute ago when you described first encountering the strong um, predestinarian language here in Romans 9. That, that suggests to me that there was, and I could be wrong about this, I don't know your background, but um, does, does, is that an indication that at some point in your Christian faith you weren't a Calvinist and then you became one? And if that's the case, can you tell us about what that process was like? Yeah, definitely. So I, when I was, uh, so I, I went into the Marine Corps right out of high school and I was stationed in Southern California. And while I was there, I got plugged into the Calvary chapels, which I don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with them, familiar. but, but, um, that's where I really fell in love with the Bible and, and, um, say what you want, you know, week in and week out, every time we gathered, we had our Bibles open and we were, we were talking about the Bible and, and it was, it, it, it was just, what I felt like I was meant for. I just loved uh, learning and, and everything and uh, really, really dug, dug in deeper than, than most uh, in that movement. They're kind of suspicious of, of the uh, critical exegetical stuff. And, and that was where, where my mind wanted to go. And uh, the first exposure, the first time I ever heard the term Calvinist was in a discipleship class there at the church that, that I attended, where we watched a video of Norm Geisler's, um, I think it's like five reasons I'm not a five-point Calvinist or, or something like that some some somewhat famous um, uh, sermon that he gave about what's what's wrong with Calvinism and uh, a friend of mine who, who's actually my brother-in-law now we kind of went into this this journey with sleepless nights like trying to figure out how do you reconcile what's going on in Romans 9 with John 3:16 and and can there be limited atonement with 1 John 2:2 2, 2, and you know what, what what's going on with all this stuff and so uh, eventually it it just kind of clicked into place for me and and uh what what really seemed to me to be uh a very clear and compelling way of, of fitting all the pieces together. Uh, now I would say that um, I, 
I, I'm wary more now of the way that Calvinism has tended to be overly systematic, leading to a little bit of anachronism sometimes. And so um, some Calvinists would probably not like my variety of it. I've been, I've been trying to come up with a different label. I'm building on the, the trends of um, uh, plant-based meats and uh, working with the label impossible Calvinism, right? So with, without uh, any meats, uh, without the, the systematics and completely plant-based, completely Bible-based. And and so there, there are a few nuances that I, I, I would imagine you and I might see a little bit different, but as much as I can really trying to let the biblical language speak and uh, be very, very precise with it and not make it say more than it intends to say, uh, you know, doing good exegesis, looking at the occasion of of what was going on in Romans nine or what was going on in Ephesians chapter one, and uh, trying to situate that, especially in the context of Second Temple Jewish uh, theology, and and that was the the atmosphere where the first Christians had to explain God's election in light of the fact that now there are all these Gentiles uh, joined to the people of God, being blessed in the Messiah, and uh, all of that. So uh, that's a little bit of my journey with that. Uh, trying trying to keep the label because it, it's helpful. It lets people know generally where I am, but but also trying to distance myself, I think, from some of the over systematization that uh, can be a tendency there. Yeah. I'm sure you appreciate that. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. Um, it, it's, it's interesting that you say that um, a very, ra I almost use the word rabid, but a, a very adamant non-Calvinist, it's through the work of a very adamant non-Calvinist, namely Norm Geisler, that you began to be attracted to Calvinism. Um, it, it's funny because I hear that often. James White, for example, yeah. on the on Alpha and Omega Ministries, he, he often points out that um, many people have uh, come to Calvinism because they're, 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 they hear really bad arguments against it. Um, and I think that's interesting. But one person who seems to who at least it seems on the surface at least that he is uh, changing a lot of minds and, and causing waves from the other direction is my friend Leighton Flowers, a fellow professor at uh, Trinity, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. He's got a show, as you know, called Soteriology 101, and he, he recently had you on his show as a guest to discuss Romans 9. Uh, tell us about the background of that, how it happened, how, how it came about, and what you guys discussed when you, uh, when you discussed Romans 9 on a show. Yes. So uh, a mutual friend, uh, David Palman, uh, he got us connected and uh, I was looking for somebody to have a, a, a good conversation with about it uh, just in a Facebook group. Uh, Romans 9 comes up quite often and uh, sometimes you know you know how uh, social media goes the the conversations aren't always all that uh, great and beneficial and and so I thought you know maybe maybe there's uh, a place to a venue to do this in uh, a more productive way where where people can uh, be a little more disarmed and and listen a little better and so he asked if I'd be willing to discuss it with Leighton and I thought it went really well uh, we had kind of short notice be um, my uh, third child was just born a couple days after that. So we were we were up against the clock wondering if we were even going to be able to get the recording done be before my wife went into labor, and, and we did. And uh, I thought it went well, but uh, there, there are pros and cons to not being able to prepare. What was nice about it was uh, I don't think either of us really like had our guards up. I think we were able to have a really good conversation, enjoy talking to each other and, and digging into the text and pressing each other a little bit, but, but not in a combative way and um uh but what that meant was we weren't like on script so hmm. there were a number of things where it was like
like, oh, you know, I wish I had said this or oh, I should have nuanced that or maybe I didn't answer that question very well. And so uh, as I, I uh, read back through it and, and did something that you should never do, read a couple of uh, YouTube comments, um, I, I thought, you know, there, there is probably some opportunity to do something uh, as a follow up on that. And, and I'd love to, to chat with Leighton about it some more in, in the future on his show. But um, one of the things that somebody said is, why don't you guys just just walk through the Greek? And, mm -hmm. and I don't know what Leighton's utility with, with Greek is, but uh, Greek is my thing. I, I uh, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, where if you learn anything from that place, you learn how to uh, work with Greek grammar. I think I, in the course of my studies there, I had to read Wallace's uh, big old thick Greek grammar like three times cover to cover, you know. So uh, I, I love working in Greek. And I thought, you know, is there a way I could present what's going on with with Paul's argument there in in an understandable way for people who don't read Greek, uh, but which will help them to see what's kind of emphatic and and uh, so that we can focus in on on what Paul's point is. And I think in Romans nine we get distracted from that and and because there are other issues. There's of course the theological questions that are debated about predestination and the nature of election and and all that, but. Um, maybe by by focusing in on Paul's discourse and his argument as it progresses, and and one of the things that studying the biblical languages does is makes you slow down hmm. and say, huh, why why did he do that when he could have said this? And we'll, we'll we'll see that a couple of of places. And and when you slow down in that way, and you're not looking at your English text, which we're blessed to have a lot of great English texts. You know, I, I love them. I use them all the time as a pastor. I never preach from my Greek. I, I preach from an English translation. Um, but when, when you when you do just look at the the original language, you can slow down and, and see some things that that maybe you weren't noticing before, and occasionally find some places to correct the text and and hopefully hone in on what was central for Paul and and understanding what his argument was uh, in Romans chapter nine. Gotcha. Very good. Um, well, you used a phrase um, when I was introducing you a few minutes ago. You used the phrase unconditional election, and that's a topic that I discussed in the last episode of The Apologetics, um, but but not at great length or, or in any depth. Um, and, and today we're going to be discussing to what extent we think Romans 9 supports the doctrine of unconditional election. But before we do, can you summarize for us um, how, you, how it is that you understand the phrase unconditional election in the context of Calvinism's uh, tulip? Um, you know, what, sure. what it, just what is unconditional election? Yeah, so if you're, if you're keeping up with the latest New Testament scholarship, um, uh, it's Specifically, I'm thinking of John Barclay's uh, landmark book, Paul and the Gift, which everybody who hasn't read that, who's interested in Paul's theology, needs to stop what they're doing, lock themselves in a room with that book and read it and don't come out until you're done. Um, but uh, he he prefers, instead of the language of unconditional, unconditioned, because uh, the nature of grace was such in the ancient world that um, it began a relationship that, that was, was mutual. There was reciprocity. There was give and take. We think of a gift or we think of grace, and if it's a really good gift or if God is really gracious, he doesn't you know, require any strings attached or ask for anything in return. But that doesn't seem to be quite the picture. Um, so when we talk about election or unconditioned election, it means that, that, that human beings didn't do anything, believe anything, say anything, you know, whatever might be the case, that, that caused God to choose them. Right, so so there's there's not a prior condition that makes one elect. God's election is is free, 
it's it's his sovereign choice. He did it. Um, you know, we we talked a little bit about it before. Before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians one four, and um, I think seeing it as unconditioned as uh, I, I just express is important when we look in Romans chapter nine, because that seems to be what, what Paul is emphasizing, that it wasn't with regard to works. It wasn't with regard to worth on the part of the human and uh, you know whatever cultural standards of worth might've been in place in Paul's day or, or for his audience. And he even says it wasn't with regard to human will. So uh, it wasn't an act of the will that caused God to choose. Uh, it, was, it was God choosing that caused God to choose. And so I, I think that's what I, I would want to highlight when, gotcha. when we talk about unconditional election. Yeah, yeah, and that, I'm glad that you finished that up in the way that you did, because one of the things I pointed out in last episode is that some definitions of unconditional election, I think, are insufficient. Um, last uh, In that last episode, I quoted from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Not not that Wayne Grudem is the, is, you know, the end-all, be-all of Calvinism, but he was the mm -hmm. theologian on whom I cut my teeth as a young theologian, yeah. and, and I still yeah, respect his work. Yeah, um, but but, but in it, he defines unconditional election as being that God chooses not based on any merit in the person mm -hmm. that um, he's choosing. Um, but I think you and I would say, and, and you did just say, it's not just uh, that there's nothing um, uh, meritorious in the people that he chooses that prompts God to choose them. Um, it, it's, but it's nothing at all, nothing that they would do or believe or, or yep. anything like that. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, but let me ask you this in that episode last episode of the apologetics the whole point of my episode was to push back on a um on something that Leighton flowers has been doing for some time which is insisting that it is um, appropriate to use the word arbitrary to describe this unconditional election that you and i have been um talking about uh and I, viewers will by this point likely have seen that episode and know how i push back on that challenge um but let me ask you the question if, if god has chosen who will be saved and, and who will not, um, not based on anything that they would do or be or believe or anything at all, um, and, and just purely on his own, by his own sovereign will, um, then how, how would you defend the, the, the uh, against, how would you defend unconditional election from the charge that it, it, that makes God's choice arbitrary? Do you have any thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, uh, so there's there's a number of, of ways you might come at it. One would be to say, well, what what God is doing is, uh, and, and we'll get into this when we get to verses 22 and 23 of Romans 9, um, the, the nature of, of both election and reprobation are not precisely parallel. There, there's a little bit of incongruity there that, that we can notice in the grammar, and, and uh, I want to highlight that when we get there. But... Um, so what, what God is doing is he's extending, what's emphatic is God is extending to mercy, mercy to people who do not deserve it. And nobody is going to be judged who did not deserve it. Right. So, so if you want to call that arbitrary, that, you know, that's, that's God being unconditionally gracious to people who don't deserve it. I don't think that's the right word. Right. And um, beyond that, I would say, well, you know, it was arbitrary for God to create the world the way that it was created. And, and unless we're open theists and we think that God is being surprised all the time by the directions 
you know, by the direction things go, God arbitrarily set things up so that it would certainly happen the way things have happened. So uh, if you're an Arminian and you believe that uh, God knows the future based on, you know, divine foreknowledge and you say, um, well, yeah, but still God, God knew it was going to happen when he, as a consequence of him creating the way that he created. If you're more Calvinistic, you say, well, God, God set it up. He wrote the script. He, 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 he wrote the book. He designed it this way. He's the, the author. And so um, I, I just think that categorically arbitrariness is, is completely the wrong word, both in terms of, of the nature uh, of the way the, the Bible presents God's grace and God's election and uh, in, in terms of, of the picture of God as creator. You know? So I, uh, I'd be interested. I, I haven't had a chance to listen to your comments on that, but uh, I'd be interested to see maybe there's, there's more philosophical and, and um, uh, linguistic reasons for rejecting it. But, but to me, that, that just doesn't even get off the ground. I think that's the wrong question. And so, yeah. yeah. So I think the issue is that when when non-Calvinists critique election and Calvinism as if it's arbitrary, they're picturing it from uh, the position uh, or from the standpoint of God choosing from from competing existing options. Um, he, he, he creates humankind and then he picks from all of those humans that he intends to create, which of them he will save and which of them he will not. That's the perspective from which non-Calvinists see the choice happening. But as you rightly um, identified by pointing out that we're looking at this from the perspective of God as creator, um, the, the, the point I make is that when a, when a potter pot, uh, uh, forms a pot or when a blacksmith forges a sword or when a puzzle maker designs a puzzle the person the, the, this crafter this creator of the thing isn't choosing from competing existing options um like a like like the, the example i gave in my episode was that episode from indiana jones 3 have you seen indiana jones 3 the the last crusade the one with sean connery yes. yes so you know that scene at the end in the chamber where they're picking which cup they think is the holy grail Mm -hmm. um, so that's the that's the kind of choice that non-Calvinists think of when they when they hear us talk about election. There's a bunch of options before God, albeit yeah. logically, because He made this yeah. choice in eternity past. But nevertheless, these 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 competing options will exist, and then from those existing options, God chooses which ones will be saved and which will not. But that's the wrong way to look at it. It's more like um, a potter crafting a pot. Um, the, the 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 choice, the the election to for the pot to be what it is precedes its existence logically um and and that's the nature of what it or that's what it is to be a creator of something you're not choosing from competing existing options what it is uh is what it is because you made it what it is um and so i think you were right to hit the i think you hit the nail on the head there um but of course i would encourage people to uh including yourself to go back and, and watch and, and let me yeah, know what they think i'll check it out um before we dive into the text, I have one last question for you, which is um, I, I want to be careful that we don't say more, uh, we, that we don't extrapolate more from Romans 9 than should be. I, I, I think yeah. many of us Calvinists see Romans 9 as support for the doctrine of unconditional election in sort of a full-fledged, full-throated way. And I wonder if perhaps we sometimes try to make the text say more than it actually does. So before we dive into the text, can you summarize for us what you think it doesn't say, but perhaps some Calvinists try to make it say, uh, versus what it actually does say insofar as it supports unconditional election? Yeah, so probably the 
best full-length exegesis of Romans 9 is still John Piper's monograph, uh, The Justification of God, which if, if you're reading scholarly commentaries and, and, and journal articles, you're going to come across that in the footnotes. It's, it's still a standard. We think of Piper as, a, as an influential pastor, uh, but he was a, a very good New Testament scholar before he, he left the academy to, to become a pastor. And this book is, is one that is still uh, uh, widely used. Again, check the footnotes of your, of your favorite exegetical commentaries. You're going to find it there uh, on his treatment of Romans 9. But in that, he makes the point when he, he's talking about the nature of election, specifically with uh, the reference to Esau and Jacob, where Paul explicitly says that it happened before they were born and had done anything good or evil. And he, he made this point that the first time I read it, I, I, I stopped because I was being a little too systematic. I said, wait a second. But, but he said um, that the text doesn't say anything about this being pre-temporal, right? Like before the creation of the world, which is what you get elsewhere, you know, Ephesians 1, uh, Revelation 13, 8, and some other texts. Uh, but uh, it, it just says it was before they were born. And, and he says, you know, if some theologian wanted to come up with some scenario that says uh, election just happens before someone is born, fine. You know, what's emphatic here is that it was before they could have done anything. And it was with re without regard to anything that they did do, etc. So I think if, if we try to force Romans 9 to say everything that we want to say or, or believe that the Bible says, then, then we're not doing it justice. It's got a unique contribution. Uh, it especially emphasizes the unconditional side of unconditional election. It doesn't especially emphasize the prior to creation-ness of, of unconditional election, but it tells us that, that um, God's choice was not conditioned by anything human beings did. God, God chooses as he wills to extend mercy to those he wills, and he hardens those whom he wills as well. And, and also I would say we need a focus because Paul is answering the question of Israel's unbelief in his day, which is uh, sort of a problem that, that uh, his gospel, as he presented it from Romans uh, you know, 1, 18 up until uh, chapter 9 is, is sort of left unanswered. Well, what, what's going on? Why is it the case that so many Israelites are not embracing Jesus as the Messiah? Wasn't the promise for them? And so uh, we, we, need to, we need to keep it in that context, keep it Israel-specific, in the right way. We can extrapolate principles from it, but but we want to do full justice to it there and, and recognize, you know, it doesn't address the extent of the atonement. Uh, it, it, it does touch on the nature of, of uh, uh, the effectual call. That That's an important term, uh, but uh, not in a full-fledged way that, that we might want. It doesn't talk about perseverance, you know, uh, for that matter. So uh, we don't want to make it say more than it says. It's, it's a step in an argument, and it's an important step in that because, again, the, the unconditioned nature of election is what's emphatic here, and I think pretty unavoidable. Okay. Well, let's start digging in and, and, and begin by just sort of uh, telling us where you think Romans 9 comes in in Paul's larger argument that he's ma been making in Romans. I mean, don't go into too much detail and spend sure. too much time, but, sure. but just, you know, you mentioned, for example, the, the focus on Israel in this chapter, um, and, you know, there, there are some uh, treatments of Romans that that treat Romans nine to eleven as if it's sort of in a, a parenthetical, um, you know, afterthought kind of thing. But it seems to me that Paul sees a really important reason for addressing the question that he does here. So, 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 um, situate Romans nine for us in Paul's larger argument before we start digging into the text. So. 
in in the book of Romans, Paul has has talked about his gospel that uh, it's a gospel that that placed a call on his life to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles or the nations, and but it is still a gospel that is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You know, Romans chapter uh, one verses six and 17 that it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes but there's a there's a priority for God's fulfillment God's faithfulness to Israel and and that question gets raised a, a number of times throughout if if Israel is unfaithful will, will God's faithfulness be uh, nullified or called into question or anything like that and um, well it looks like God's faithfulness has been nullified and called into question precisely because elephant in the room uh, the majority of ethnic Israelites Jews Jewish people, the, uh, the the descendants of Abraham, are not currently embracing this gospel, are not experiencing God's power for salvation in Christ. They are not believing. What gives uh, account for that issue? Does that does that uh, invalidate God, Paul's gospel, or does Paul see God at work doing something else through Israel's unbelief, uh, accomplishing some greater ends uh, in, in this situation? And I think Romans nine is is nine through eleven is Paul's answer to that. So Romans eight. Uh, concludes with this language of of God's call uh, that that we are His people who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then um, he he brings up the issue of God's word, God's promise throughout Romans nine. Is is that reliable? Is it trustworthy? Since the Israelites are not uh, embracing it or not benefiting from it. And Paul gives an emphatic yes. It's a complex argument, but part of that complex argument is to appeal in chapter 9 to God's freedom to extend mercy and to harden as he determines. Okay. Um, now, we are going to go into detail into the text beginning in verse 6, but in the um, first five verses of Romans 9, I, I do want to ask you a question about Paul's statement about here about um, his fellow Jews, because as you are probably aware, um, many non-Calvinists, including Leighton Flowers, has made the argument that here in verse three, which I think I've got up on the screen for viewers, you know, Paul, when Paul says he could wish that he were accursed, damned, cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, um, non-Calvinists like Leighton Flowers will sometimes argue that if, if Calvinism is true, this is an indication that Paul is actually more merciful, more compassionate, more loving toward the Jews than even God himself. Um, how would you respond to that charge before we continue through Romans 9? Yeah, so the background to a lot of what's going on in Romans 9 biblically is Exodus 32 through 34, where uh, Israel has just committed the famous uh, golden calf idolatry and uh, Yahweh and, and Moses have this conversation where Yahweh says look I, I'm done with this people they're stiff necked um, I'm going to destroy them and start over with just you I'm going to going to make my promise uh actualized through you. And Moses intercedes for Israel and he begs and pleads and ultimately he wins Yahweh over. And uh, that's where you get the revelation of, of God's mercy there. And, and again, it's a, it's a text that Paul appeals to uh, multiple times. And Paul is kind of standing in that, that place of Moses here as he writes that. He, he cares for them. His heart's desire, he says in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 1, is for their salvation. Um, and yet he recognizes God's freedom based on that same text to have mercy as he sees fit. And so um, 
part of the the solution as well is to look back or excuse me to look forward to the end in, in chapter 11 uh, ultimately um, Paul's desire and God's desire even on a Calvinist reading uh, are identical. Uh, Paul wants all Israel saved. God is going to save all Israel, but it's going to take the reversal of their hardening, uh, which which God is using uh, as a uh, a means to to bring the gospel to the nations and to bring in this group that he calls the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the nations. And uh, but then ultimately all Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean along the way? We're going to see that it does involve. Um, preparing uh, vessels of wrath for destruction. And, and I think that means uh, that, that some Israelites, according to God's design in this grand scheme of saving this group he calls all Israel, involves uh, the, the eternal judgment and condemnation of uh, these people uh, who are called um, uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But um, I, I, I don't think there's a, a whole lot to that argument. I, I, I see it as kind of an emotional uh, rhetorical appeal. You know, oh, well, look, uh, Paul is nicer than God if Calvinism is true. But um, I, I don't think uh, there's too much substance to it. It doesn't uh, free us from uh, getting away from what's going on. And and how does Paul conclude Romans 11? By 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 praising God for for the mystery of His will, saying that that His purposes are beyond comprehension, and and uh, God is doing something that that I don't fully understand. Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, but we need to worship Him. Mm. And so I I think that's uh, probably a, a better place to to go with this. I think what I would just add is that um, what I think those who make this criticism are missing, or, or or let me put let me put it another way, what I think they're doing is they are treating the situation as if the only factor involved is one's mercy um and so mm -hmm. paul on their on their objection seems more willing to more desirous of mercying israel than even god is but there's more to the matter than just mercy you know god's purposes go yeah. well beyond the purposes of a mere creature and his knowledge uh, and his wisdom go far beyond any mere creature including paul um and and so I, I think when when you try to make the argument when you try to reduce and flatten it out to just simply whether paul or god is more merciful ignoring other factors that may that paul may not be aware of that paul may not be sufficiently righteous enough to to consider um, that when you bring in things that the fact that God is transcendent and omniscient and all these things, um, there's much more at play than mere merely the attribute of mercy. And, and so I think that's that's my problem with the objection. Um, yeah, I. I I agree. I, there are a number of statements of, of divine purpose throughout, and uh, mercy is really a means to an end. Uh, Paul Paul will talk about how uh, uh, looking back at Romans 9 to 11 and 15, 8 and 9, about how, how God's purposes are being realized so that the Gentiles will praise him for his mercy, right? So like you said, mercy isn't what's ultimate. What's ultimate is is God's praise, God's revelation, God God's purpose, as as we're going to see in in chapter nine. So mercy is a means to a greater end. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, start digging in here in uh, verses six to thirteen, and you know, feel free to um, hone in on any particular detail that you think is important. But let me um, start kicking things off by. Uh, by asking you a question, but first let me make a statement. Um, so as, as we're going to discuss the, the, um, 
examples from the Old Testament that Paul uses here. Um, the choice on God's part to name Abraham's offspring through Isaac specifically and, and not through, say, uh, Ishmael. Uh, and God's choice to... Um, uh, elect Jacob over Esau uh, for his purposes. The, these Old Testament examples that he offers aren't about uh, election unto salvation in, in, in the sense that we as Calvinists mean when we talk about unconditional election. So um, maybe we could start by asking and answering the question, if the examples Paul offers here uh, aren't salvific examples, you know, or rather examples of God's salvific election, but are instead examples of election unto service, as Leighton Flowers would put it. Um, why then should we assume that these examples uh, can lend themselves in, as support to um, salvific unconditional election? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's an important question. I think that's the the strongest, if, if I were convinced of an Arminian theology. That's the, the place that I would want to focus as well. But uh, th there are some shortcomings to it. And uh, what, what what I want to do here is is focus on Paul's Greek in order to, to see what's emphatic. Uh, but we, we should do another episode on Paul's use of the Old Testament because that, that is also a, a really, really important point and, and significant. But uh, so I'm going to be very brief. Uh, if you are uh, going to take some time to, to learn about how Jewish people interpreted the Old Testament. Uh, this would be a really great book to start with. This is uh, by uh, Richard Longenecker, Biblical Exegesis in the Apostolic Period, and he goes through all the different Jewish conventions of interpretation and shows how they're evident in, in the New Testament, and, and particularly Paul uses in, uh, in, in Romans 4 and here in Romans 9, a kind of interpretation called midrash. And uh, specifically, he's using a device where he's he's linking texts up because of their correspondences with, um, with particular uh, words, such as calling, such as uh, mercy, uh, 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 seed, children, you know, the, these sorts of things. And so you, you look at these texts and, and he, he's, he's connecting some dots. But if, if, um, if what we do then is, is recognize that Paul is uh, alluding to or citing the Old Testament and then go to the Old Testament and, and interpret those texts and bring those meanings into Romans 9, we might be missing Paul's point. Because what, what I'm going to highlight here is there are a number of places where Paul draws out a theological inference from the text that he cites. And those tell us what Paul is doing with, with the text himself. So uh, we can grant a whole lot that the other interpreters want to say about the Old Testament background. Uh, a really good example is uh, Brian uh, Abishano's it's going to be, when it's done, it's going to be three volumes on Romans chapter 9. It's very good stuff, and he spends a significant amount of time looking at the Old Testament, but then he, he brings that into Paul, and it seems to be negating the theological inferences that Paul is drawing out. So I don't think there's enough of, of an appreciation of the uh, interpretive device that Paul is using. He, he's drawing principles out of these texts in order to mount a theological case uh, to explain why only some in Israel have received mercy and not all have received mercy. And, and when we pay attention to those markers, uh, we can see that he, he's doing something that, that I think has been missed by, by some interpreters. Okay, but just as a way to sort of prime our viewers for um, sure. understanding what it is that we're going to be arguing from the text, um, would you say that the reason why these examples do lend themselves as uh, in, in Paul's hands as support 
worked for unconditional election is because it, it's not that Paul is offering these examples of unconditional election unto salvation, but rather what Paul is doing is using them as proof that God, uh, that God's call is not merely, yep. is not a, an invitation that must be received by people meeting particular conditions, but rather yes. is, is something more um, sovereign to use a word that you in, yes. in a way. Yes. Yeah. Is that, is that sort of the way that you would say he's leveraging these, these examples? I, I think so. So when we get to uh, the inference that he draws, especially from Jacob and, and uh, Esau's narrative, uh, he says that that God made his choice before the two were born or had done anything good or evil. You don't find that inference in, in the Old Testament text. That's Paul telling you how he's using that text and the theological point that he's he's milking from from that text. And so um, we, we and that's the elimination of all conditions on the part of the human as the basis of of, of God's choice to extend mercy. And uh, instead of appealing to a human act or the human will, uh, several times throughout, he talks about the divine will or the divine call. And so um, that's that's what we uh, we need to see there. So yeah, I, I agree with you uh, that, that that's what's going on. And, and I think we'll see that when we, when we walk through the text. Okay. Well, one thing I think that you wanted to hone in on was Paul's use of the verb kaleo here uh, in verse seven, where it says, where he quotes the Old Testament and says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That word, the yes. English word named there is, is a arguably uh, imperfect translation of the word kaleo there. But what's interesting is um, the, the word uh, appears all throughout Romans 9, but not after Romans 9, and only twice before Romans 9, once in 4.17 and once in 8.30. And I, I think you and I would, would, would argue that this calling that Paul is referring to, because it's the word that he uses in Romans 4.17 and 8.30, um, means something a little bit more than merely an invitation, um, would, would, which is the way Leighton, I, I think it's the very word that Leighton uses to describe the call here. Um, if I'm right about yeah. that, unpack that for us. How, how does the, the word kaleo and the way Paul uses it here um, suggest that there's something more than just mere invitation? Yeah, so you referenced uh, Romans 4, 17 and 8, uh, 28 through 30, where that language uh, is used prior. And there um, in, in Romans 4, 17, God's calling is described as uh, the creation of life ex nihilo. So I think Paul is, is building on his uh, Jewish theology of the word of God. It's creative. When God speaks, Genesis 1, things happen. And, and an interesting parallel to this would be uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where uh, Paul says, uh, the God who says, Said, let light shine out of darkness has caused the light of the uh, has shined the light of the knowledge of the glory of God uh, within us uh, so that that we see God's glory in the face of Jesus I just butchered that citation but <laughs> right. your 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 uh, your, your uh, viewers can can go back and listen to it. It, it it's an appeal to the creation narrative saying that this is what happened God did a new creation uh, miracle and that's that's what um, uh, the, the birth of Isaac is described as in um, Romans chapter 4, verse 17. And then in, in Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30, um, grounded in God's uh, foreloving, his, his forechoosing, uh, God, God puts that into reality through predestination and, and calling, which I think happens in conjunction with the gospel preached. And it's presented as a, a creational call. It results in justification. And if, if you look at Paul's 
language of justification throughout Romans. Um, a lot of times interpreters reduce it to a, a forensic metaphor and, and seeing this as a acquittal, being found not guilty, and it certainly is that. But there are a number of places, especially in Romans 4 and 5, and, and really really going on through, where uh, to be justified is, is to, to share in the new creation, is, is, is to um, uh, have, he, he, he talks about righteousness that produces life, right? So um, this is uh, much more miraculous than is sometimes appreciated. And, and for Paul, um, the, the grammar of, of Romans 8, 28 through 30 is, is very, very powerful. It's, it's only those and all those whom he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. You know, uh, they are carried through in this whole process, and it, it climaxes with nothing can separate us from the love of God. But you have the call right there in the middle. That's how God puts that into effect. And and so um, Paul is building on, again, as I, I mentioned earlier, through that, that Midrashic device, he's, he's connecting texts that talk about the call. And here, the call creates God's people, uh, God, God's naming his seed through Isaac and rather than through Ishmael is is to create a, a people that is limited in scope. Not every child of Abraham is among the called, and it happened by God's uh, choosing. And then that gets um, spelled out more explicitly in the in the very next example when um, this is in accordance with God's choice before they were born and had done anything good or evil. So this isn't an invitation. God uh, God called Isaac not as an invitation, but Paul says as a creation out of nothing. And uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, I don't mean to be too long. Um, if you were to go to Second Clement uh, chapter one verses seven through eight, which is an uh, an early uh, uh, writing in in uh, the collection called the Apostolic Fathers, some of the earliest post New Testament Christian writings we have, uh, he seems to be building on this and and drawing out some of the same inferences. And I, I'm going to just uh, uh, read that real quick. I, we didn't prepare beforehand, so I don't know if you can pull it up at some point. But um, uh, he says, "For he had mercy upon us, and in his compassion he saved us when we had no hope of salvation except that which comes from him. And even though he had seen in us much deception and destruction for he called us when we did not exist and out of nothing he willed us into being so so he's reading romans uh especially chapters uh eight and nine as 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 god's calling being something that creates life where there's only death and so i i think we're we're missing a lot of uh uh, of what's going on in the text if we reduce it in that way to just an invitation. Mm. Well, you, you brought up Romans 8, 29, 30, and I wanted to ask you about this this question in, in verse 29 of Romans 8, prognosco. Um, you, you and I, you, 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 you referred to it as, as, as for choosing, for loving, and I yes. think you're right yes. to do so. Um, yeah. but, uh, and, and we could go into de a lot of detail into why. I mean, you know, th this language of knowing when God knows persons, yes. it's not about knowledge about the person. It's about uh, a, 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 a choice to love a person. And, yes. and, and what Paul seems to be saying is that God chose beforehand to love um, these people. He, cho he chose to enter into a relationship with them. But 
what Leighton has argued is that this word pro, uh, prognosco, translated for new in Romans 8.29, he argues something a little bit unique that I have never heard somebody argue before, which is that what it actually means is these are the people that he knew previously, namely referring to Old Testament saints here. And as support for that, he points to the only other place in Romans where prognosco was used, which is Romans 11.2, where Paul yeah. says God has not rejected his people Israel, whom he foreknew. Uh, Leighton would argue that this means uh, that God has not rejected the, the people that he knew previously to now, namely the, yeah. the, the Jews, the, um, the, the um, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How would you respond to that? And, and why do you think that prognosco, even in Romans 11 too, doesn't mean the people that God knew previously, but rather the people that God has you know, uh, chosen to enter into relationship to in the same way that we th th we take it to mean in Romans 8.29? Yeah, so if it's a strange view that he argues for. Um, I wrote my master's thesis on this, looking at it both in the uh, Jewish context as well as uh, the, the language in, in Paul specifically. And what you find there is even uh, among a diversity of different kinds of scholars, uh, this language of, of foreknew or foreknowledge, you know, you, you get it also in First um, uh, Peter chapter one. Um, nobody believes that it means anything like uh, prescience, you know, like it, it, it has to do with God's choosing, God, God's uh, electing love, his electing knowledge. And you get this uh, really, really explicitly tied to predestination in um, uh, text from the Dead Sea Scrolls called the Hodayot or the um, uh, Thanksgiving hymns. And, and there, uh, God's knowledge is a creative knowledge, right? And so you, you think about this theologically, and, and I'm more of an exegete and less of a theologian, but if God knows something and God's knowledge is powerful, then that something has to happen. Otherwise, God's knowledge was wrong, right? You know, and, and so it for God to know something is different from us knowing something. Us knowing something doesn't create any reality, but for the, the covenanters at, at Qumran, it was a creative reality. Nothing happens, the text says, apart from God's knowledge. God's knowledge makes that thing happen. And so when when the text talks about God knowing a people, uh, again, we're, we're talking about him, him creating a people. And it's really interesting, the appeal to um, Romans 11 too, because he says, uh, ah, you know, the foreknown are, are Israel. But what's the end result of God's foreknowledge of him? He tells is God has not rejected those whom he foreknew, and he will save all Israel, right? So whoever those foreknown, uh, his foreknowledge is an effectual foreknowledge that is going to uh, ultimately result in them receiving mercy and being saved, as as the uh, passage concludes. So I, I don't think there's a strong case to be had there, and um, I would uh, point uh, to a lot of lexical evidence. I, I would say that if you just begin with, with uh, BDAG, the standard Greek lexicon, look in the theological dictionary of the New Testament, you're going to get scores of examples going back into the Hebrew uh, Old Testament and uh, into intertestamental Judaism. And you're going to see a lot of examples of, of places where God's knowledge of people isn't um, uh, as he explains it, but it's 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 a choosing knowledge, it's an electing knowledge, and it's a creating knowledge. Yeah, which which yeah. makes Romans eight twenty nine and thirty really powerful evidence, I think, for uh, unconditional election because it's it's saying there's this group of people that God chose in advance to enter into relationship yep. with, and it's those people that He predestined those and those alone, yep. and all of those yeah. uh, He predestined to be yes. conformed to the image of His yes. Son, and those people He called also, yeah. and those He etc. etc. Yeah. So I 
I think it's really powerful evidence, and I, I'd love um, I'd love to see a debate on just the thought that foreknew there means new previously, as as uh, Leighton Flowers has argued. But anyway, let's let's return to Romans nine then. And you know, in the notes that you sent me um, before we started recording, you said that this phrase at the beginning of verse eight, uh, tut estin, um, you know, that is. Um, you said that that mm -hmm. is probably the most important aspect of the Greek here in Romans 9 because it clues, or, or not the specific phrase, but phrases like it, um, uh, yes. markers of interpretation or inference. Explain to us yes. why the, this, why these markers are so important and, and, um, and, and so that listeners, so that viewers can keep their eye open for it as we continue through the text. Okay, so um, uh, this is really helpful. This is uh, Logos Bible software, and it has a function for the Greek. I don't know if it does it for, for English, where you can have it lay it out in uh, these clausal propositional outlines. And then on the left there, you have it telling you uh, essentially the function of, of the, the clause or the, the proposition. And so it's, it's a very good way to, to dig in and, and see what's, what's going on emphatically here. And there, there are a number of markers throughout Romans 9 that, that clue you in in that way on what Paul's point is. So uh, you get one in verse six where he says, uh, for it is not, um, or they are not all Israel who are of Israel, right? So he's 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 uh, building up, uh, he's, he's establishing grounds or reason there and and you get some markers of cause and markers of purpose. And as you pointed out, the the what, what I've uh, really highlighted is in um, verse eight, which follows the first quotation from the Old Testament, in Isaac shall your seed be called or your, your descendant be called. It's the, the Greek word sperma there. He says, this is uh, tout estin. Um, and he tells us what the interpretation is, like what principle he's drawing from this. So whatever we think Paul is doing with the Old Testament, uh, we need to begin by asking what interpretive uh, principles does he draw out of the passages that he cites. And there's a number of them throughout as he, he cites uh, many Old Testament passages from, from Israel's early narratives. So in this one, in verse 8, he says, that is, so what's the what's the point of my citation from uh, the story of Isaac's calling and, and, and God God calling Abraham's seed in Isaac? Uh, he says, that is the, the children of, uh, it, it is not the, um, sorry, uh, he says uh, that means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So Paul is uh, already building in here a uh, an inference from the the, the specific. Uh, choice in Isaac rather than in all of Abraham's children, Isaac and Ishmael, um, he is finding in here a a marker of uh, God's. Uh, uh, selective choice, even among Israelites, descendants of Abraham, and uh, putting a, a, a limit on the scope of the divine mercy according to God's naming, his calling, uh, uh, you know, his promise even is, is the language that's used there uh, in verse 8. So uh, that would be one of the first, I think that is the first inference that uh, Paul draws out uh, looking at uh, Israel in terms of a, a, of a promissory remnant and not in universal terms, every son of Abraham. And that, that language of promissory Israel is, is one I borrowed from uh, Michael Byrd, uh, his, his uh, 
pretty recent commentary on on Romans uh, is helpful, and I like that term, promissory Israel. It's about who are the the beneficiaries of the divine promise. Um, and, and be sure as we go through the text, if I pass one of these markers that you're talking about um, without noticing it myself, let me know, and 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 we can dig in. Um, but the next important um, thing that I have from you in your notes is the gar, um, the inferential gar at the beginning of verse 11, um, where he, where Paul says, for uh, it is uh, before they were yet born and had done nothing good or bad, etc. So tell us how this marker, uh, this gar at the beginning of verse 11, um, how it continue, what, what point, what it indicates is the point that Paul is trying to draw from the example of Jacob and Esau. Exactly. Yeah. So that that's the the thing. Again, we're we're always going back. What is what is Paul ringing from this text? And and the gar clues us in on uh, what he's doing here. And so uh, this is the the text that uh, talks, of course. Um, about uh, Rebecca conceiving twins, and uh, it's very emphatic. It says uh, so. It, it, if you're looking at the the narrative of uh, Isaac and Ishmael, there's there's a reversal of worldly systems of worth, particularly with um, uh, patriarchy, right? And um, so he chooses the the younger and instead of the firstborn son. But but you could make the argument there that well, the reason why is because uh, Hagar was was uh, one of uh, Sarah's servants, whereas Sarah is his wife, and so of course there's a privileging there culturally, right? But then when we get into the story of uh, the conception of Jacob and Esau, it says very emphatically in the Greek, it was um, it was by one man, and it says it was by one act of it's the Greek word uh, koites, which is you know you get coitus, which is a an act of of, of uh, sexual intercourse. The, the very same like there's nothing that distinguishes these two in any uh, worldly system of value, and in, in that context, uh, you have the choice of Jacob over Esau, the the older serving the younger, as as he says. And so in in verse 11, you get um, um, these, uh, you get the gar marking that, that we're dealing with an interpretation, and you get uh, uh, some negated concessive participles. So he says, uh, it, it was although neither had done anything good or evil. And, and even that, the, the inclusion of the word anything is interesting. Paul could have just said, although they hadn't done good or evil, but he adds the indefinite pronoun there. And this is one of those places where slowing down, looking at the Greek makes you think like, what's Paul, you know, emphasizing here? And he adds that word anything to tell you that there is absolutely no basis in anything these individuals did. It couldn't have been because this happened before they were born, right? So there's, there's no cultural markers of worth and there's no action that God took into account to condition his choice. And so then you get another important discourse marker at the end of verse 11, where you have the, the henna clause. What is the condition, right? So there's no condition in uh, Jacob or Esau. You know, no, no reason why God rejected Esau is listening and no reason why he chose Jacob is listed. But he does say that it was in uh, in order that uh, his purpose according to election might remain. That's, that is the condition that is, is laid out. It's the divine purpose, right? Okay, so so after giving the henna clause that, that it's according, uh, it's God's uh, purpose to carry forth, to, to cause to remain his uh, purpose according to election, uh, the grounds of that are expressed uh, both negatively and positively in verse 12. So it is not 
according to works, but from the one who calls. And and it's interesting the, the way that Paul says this here too. Again, Greek makes you slow down. So he says not works, right? So there you've got the abstract concept of works, but what's the antithesis? Not calling, but you've got the definite article there, right? The one who calls, right? So it's not grounded on anybody's works, but it is grounded on the one who calls. Who's the one who calls? God, right? So this is this is God's doing, uh, not anybody else's doing. And, it, and again, it's made emphatic. And, and I, I also want to highlight that um, this is an antithesis here, and, and Romans is notorious for its antithesis, right? So you, antitheses. So you've got uh, the grace versus law antithesis, and you've got the faith versus works antithesis. But Paul doesn't carry over the faith versus works antithesis here, does he? Look at his antithesis is uh, not with faith and works, but with works and divine calling, right? And so so this is, again, uh, taking us out of the realm of conditions that human beings might meet and placing us in the realm of the actions that uh, the free God performs. You, mm. you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, and so this is a, a really important thing to, to highlight in order to see, again, the, the principles that, that Paul is drawing out here. And, and he validates this um, uh, by another reference to scripture. Uh, again, the older will serve the younger. And then verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And and I think that language of of loved and hated is is election and non-election language primarily. It's it's you know, if a Calvinist wants to look at this and say, oh, that means that the Esau was eternally reprobate, I think they're they're moving too much into it. It just means that he's not the the chosen one. Uh, through whom God would would uh, create his his seed by virtue of calling. Mm. So, um, anyways, yeah, maybe we can we can see where we want to go from there. So it's at this point that we uh, first encounter in Romans nine, or at least it seems to me this is the first example of what's called the hypothetical objector, um, who is hypothetically responding to what Paul has said with, "Is there injustice on God's part?" Um, you know, we Calvinists have often pointed to the hypothetical objectors in Romans nine as an indication that um, our understanding of what Paul is saying. Uh, is is right because our understanding is, is what prompts the very hypothetical objections that and the, the very non-hypothetical the very actual um, yes. the, the objections that non-Calvinists offer look like the kinds of objections that Paul represents in this hypothetical um, object uh, objection. Um, we're going to continue here in a second, but but is there anything you want to say about verse fourteen and the hypothetical objection that if everything Paul has just inferred from those texts is true, does that mean that God is unjust? Anything you want to say about this verse? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think they're raising an objection, like you said, that that those who want to ground God's choice and God's calling in uh, some kind of prior condition. Like I I think we go too far when we say that if the condition of election was faith, then then it's based on works. I when I hear Calvinists say that, I say, well, no, that that doesn't work with, with Paul. Like there there's yeah there's there's a contrast between faith and works that, that's very important in Paul. Uh, but uh, what is emphatic here is that. Uh, there are no conditions, you know, and that is why the objection is raised. And we're going to see in verse 16 that the fact that there are no uh, uh, 
conditions is taken up to a new level in 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 Paul's inference there. But we'll we'll, we'll get there in time. And so I I think that uh, regardless of, of of objections to the contrary, what we get here is um, a, a question: Is God unjust? Is God arbitrary? Um, you know, and and Paul's answer is an emphatic no, absolutely not. You know, the, and that that make genoita the the you know even the the thought is is uh, not uh, agreeable. You know that that sort of thing. So um, I, I I think this and the objection. What is it in verse nineteen? Uh, who resists his will? Why does he feel, still find fault for who resists his will? I think both of these are much better explained if Paul is talking about God. Uh, choosing one uh, to the rejection of another on the basis of no conditions in the human being. Uh, it, it would seem more intuitively that it is more just of God to uh, choose on the basis of some condition, some good or some evil that, that they had done. But he says, no, it's based simply on the one who calls. It's, it's God's choice through and through. Hmm. It, it reminds me of the hypothetical objector in Romans 3, um, after Paul has been talking about um, uh, G Gentiles and Jews being on the same ground, as it were, um, he, the hypothetical objector says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And uh, Leighton Flowers has argued that the hypothetical objector here in Romans 9 is like that hypothetical objector in Romans 3. Um, not objecting to a claim of um, uh, unconditional election or, or, or theological determinism, but to something having to do with Israel specifically. And as you and I began this conversation saying, um, what Paul is addressing here in Romans 9 is very much focused on uh, the, the question of Israel. Um, so how would you, you know, this, this objection, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Um, by no means, Paul says, uh, if that is specifically about Israel and, and the way that Paul is answering the question of Israel. Does that does that mean that he's uh, or does that challenge at all our um, our interpretation of this text as a, a hypothetical objection to God calling um, not purely by His own will and not by any sort of condition that's met by the people He calls? Yeah. So in in Romans three. Paul is still building his case with regard to justification. Mm. When we get to Romans 11, you already talked about the the kind of unique concentration, or Romans 9 through 11, about the unique concentration of calling language. Uh, there's also a unique concentration of mercy language. In fact, that's, that term is not used anywhere prior to Romans chapter 9, and it's only used again after chapter 11, uh, looking back and reflecting on what's going on in chapters 9 through 11 on, on, on my reading. And so... Uh, uh, here we're dealing with the issue of justification. And if anything's emphatic in Romans is that there is a condition for justification, and that's faith. We're justified by faith, right? That's a condition. And and so uh, the, at this point, if we flatten out the distinctives here, where, where Paul is, is mounting a case that universally uh, no one will be justified by the law, as, as he'll, he'll conclude in the climax of this argument, in order to say that now the righteousness of God has come apart from the law, and that it, it's not on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith for everyone who believes. Um, if we flatten that out and don't see what's unique, when, when Paul is bringing up unique terms and, and a unique situation, a unique problem with, with Israel's story, uh, in chapters nine, uh, then then we're doing damage to to Paul's argument, I think, and so um, 
even though it's very much in the same spirit and it's very much a Jewish objector, of course it's a Jewish person who's going to be offended by by Paul saying that just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're part of uh, the, the the called people, right? And and, um, and and again, he's going to get even more offensive. He never he never lessens the offense; he increases the offense. It, it, it ramps up. So um, I I don't think that that's an argument that, that that gains any traction that I see as any problem for my view. Uh, Paul's whole point is that um, uh, when, when he talks about whether or not God is faithful, he's saying that despite the unbelief of Israel, God's faithfulness is still established in, in what he's doing through Christ. And ultimately, even his faithfulness to Israel, Romans chapter 11 is going to tell us, is going to come to fruition. They're, they're enemies of the gospel now, he says, um, but uh, they, they will believe God will, will remove their, their hardening condition and all Israel will be saved. So even... If we want to say he's telegraphing what's what's happening in Romans nine to eleven, um, what we could say, I think, is that um, God God's not done with Israel. Um, their their unfaithfulness isn't nullifying God's faithfulness. He's going to make His faithfulness an effective, actual reality, and that that's where again uh, Romans eleven climaxes. Okay. Um, well, returning to verses fourteen and fifteen of Romans nine, it's interesting the way that Paul substantiates. Um, his his absolute insistence that there's not injustice on God's part. So he raises yeah. he, he raises the hypothetical objection: Is there injustice on God's part? And then, as you point out, he says, "May genoita by no means uh, may it not may it not be right." Um, yeah. And 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 to substantiate that, there's there's inferential gar there. Um, to substantiate yep. his denial of that, he quotes this text in which Paul or sorry in which God speaking of um, uh, speaking of Pharaoh says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, uh, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And what's interesting to me is, uh, at least uh, uh, on my, the way I'm looking at it, 2,000 years removed from when Paul is writing, I don't see how this is substantiation of the fact that um, God is not unjust if, if what Paul is saying is true. So can you help me to understand and, and, and viewers to understand how is it that um, this appeal on, um, of, of Paul to this text from the Old Testament about mercy and compassion, how does that substantiate his absolute denial that this makes God unjust? Yeah, so the citation is actually not from the Pharaoh narrative. It's from the 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 fallout of the golden calf incident oh, and, right. and Moses' intercession after. Yeah, Sorry. so it's from Exodus thirty three nineteen. That's okay. And um, here, this is where God determines uh, to have mercy, even though Israel deserves to be wiped out and for, for God to start over through uh, Moses. And uh, it, it's part of the revelation of God's name. And if, if uh, you know, I already referenced Piper's book, but he's got a chapter on this uh, that I can't do justice to right now. But um, he's got a whole chapter on this, this reference, and it, it's very good and very important. But think about what's going on here. Um, so there's the question of injustice. If if Paul is not saying that God's election, God's calling are unconditional, then what Mo, what what Paul should have done is said, look, they didn't meet the condition. Mm. But that's not what he does. He appeals to a text that says God has mercy as he desires and compassion as he desires. And 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 it even gets um, um, intensified again when we do get to the uh, story of, of Pharaoh as well. And so this is about God's uh, choice and, and, and free determination to, to preserve uh, a people from a, among the Israelites. And it's interesting when you go to that narrative, a number of them are destroyed in judgment, but he chooses to um, save some 
some, even though according to his own uh, words, God's own words in the text, they all deserve to be wiped out. Um, he, he destroys a portion of them and uh, uh, has mercy on the other portion. On what basis? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And uh, that, that doesn't work again in a conditional reading of this text that says that calling is conditional uh god's election is conditional it does work in ours where where we say that it's unconditioned and that takes us in if i could jump into verse 16 to to another inference and this one is an emphatic inference you have two inferential particles here you have ara un so if we were to translate that really literally it would be so then therefore right like it it seems redundant but he's he's saying like hey perk up and and look at what i'm saying right here uh this is this is emphatic and this is the principle again he draws out from the the reference that he gives and and really i think everything leading up to this and and notice how he escalates the 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 denials here okay so now it is is not of the one willing right uh, um and it is not the one running striving um but of the 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 mercy and god or the god God who has mercy. Maybe you would say the merciful God. There's there's a number of ways we could we could translate that. So so you've got two denials, u and ude, not neither. And this time it's not a denial that it's according to works or according to anything they had done, good or evil. He adds in another element here, not according to will. Isn't that interesting? So um, whatever we say about faith, I think everybody agrees that that faith is an act of of the human will. But Paul is saying that. There, there isn't an act of the will on the part of the human being that conditions God's choice and God's election here. Uh, I don't want to press it too hard and say that, that this excludes faith as a condition, but I, I think it creates a tension, if that's what we're trying to say here, that, that doesn't need to be made. What is what is the, the contrast? It is not willing, it is not working or striving, but it is God's mercy. God's mercy is is uncoerced, it's unconditioned, it's free, according to the inference that Paul is drawing out from uh, his argument and from the text that he cites here. Hmm. Well, and so he goes on to um, substantiate, to further substantiate this inference that it depends not on human will or on exertion, but on God uh, who has mercy by appealing to what I said earlier incorrectly, which was the the Pharaoh narrative. So he goes on to say, Gar, there's that inferential Gar again. Uh, The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And and by the way, this this to me um, is, is strong evidence of theological determinism. Um, not just yes. unconditional election, because there's a lot more, you know, very often Leighton Flowers and, and other non-Calvinists will use analogies like um, a master chess player or a master judo artist or something like that, where um, God can bring about his intended victory, his intended ends through the libertarian free choices of, of uh, free agents. Um, but there's a whole lot more to raising Pharaoh up um, for the purpose that God did in, in that he's referring to here than merely reacting um, to or or, or um, working through the libertarian choices of free agents. I mean, just think of uh, for, of, of the lifetime of uh, events, lifetime of experiences that would have gone into Pharaoh's uh, growth and development and, and maturity that would have led him to become the kind of character that he was um, in order to be used in the way that God used it. It's just inconceivable to me and maybe this is just my limitations that that 
raising Pharaoh up with the purpose that God is doing here could possibly be merely God working through libertarian free agents. But, of course, we're not here today talking about theological determinism per se. We're talking about unconditional election. So let me hand it over to you. Um, when, when Paul, is there anything you want to draw out from this uh, inference that Paul makes from this old, from, from this Pharaoh narrative in his further substantiating and, and as you said, escalating um, his emphasis that this all depends, uh, that God's calling depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Walk us through how, yeah. you know, anything important to pull out from verse 17 here. Yeah, I, I think there's some really interesting stuff here, especially when you compare Paul's quotation. So he says, the scripture says, right? So he's introducing a quotation here. Uh, and again, it you have the gar. So it's a validation of the of the inference he had just made. And, and um, what's interesting, though, is when you compare Paul's quotation to what you get in the, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text, and in the LXX, Paul has made, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Paul has made some changes that are, are pretty telling about what he's saying. So first, when he cites it, um, in the Septuagint, it has Hennekin Tautu, which is for the sake of this, right? Which which still says that, that this is the divine purpose. But but Paul's expression is more emphatic. When he has ace alta tauta, um, that, according to uh, uh, BDF, which is the, the standard uh, reference grammar for Greek, um, that is an expression that means just this and nothing else. Like, this is it, the one and only purpose. You, um, it's for this very purpose and, and no other reason at all. Um, and um, and then you get those purpose clauses in parallel, which I'll get to in a second, introduced by uh, hapos and um, to uh, subjunctive verbs. Um, but there's another change as well. Um, Paul says that God raised him up, and you brought up the idea of determinism, and I, I think that's a, a valid point to make. So in the um, uh, Hebrew, it has, I caused you to stand, which might communicate the idea that um, what God did was was um, confirm and, and increase his resistance, right? Uh, and then in the, the Septuagint, it has um, a, <clears throat> a compound verb, dia uh, tereo, which is to keep, but it's, you know, it's intensified. So the idea there might be, even though I could have wiped you out, I preserved you, in, you know, uh, in response to what you were doing. But Paul doesn't accept either of those. Mm. For Paul, God didn't, cause Pharaoh to stand and God didn't uh, keep Pharaoh, Paul says God uh, established him here or um, uh, uh, raised him up, right? So so the whole scenario is something that God has orchestrated according to Paul. It, uh, God put this whole thing in place and he did it for his very particular purposes. And those were um, to, uh, to show my power in you, right? I, I wanted to do it in you. And, and again, it's my power and it's my name. Again, the emphasis on on what, what God wants to do here as has, has been iterative uh, throughout the text. And um, so he's, he's uh, again, he's, he's showing forth his power and he's proclaiming his name in all the earth. And so um, I, I think when we, when we notice those distinctions in the, in the versions and then come over to see Paul's quotation, we, we, we get some more clues here looking at his Greek about what's really emphatic for him. And again, the, you've got the, the mu, my, my power, my name, God is doing what God wants to do. And again, we get another inference in verse 18, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. Um, 
uh, that, that highlights that uh, again. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that, that's really interesting. I wasn't aware of how Paul um, uh, repurposes and, and indeed changes. Um, I mean, changes is a strong word, but he, he, he paraphrases, let's say, um, uh, sure. and, 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 and yeah, I mean, somewhat changes what it is that the 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 normative uh, uh, Greek text that they would have used, um, what it actually says. You, you're right. If you know, our 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 non-Calvinist interlocutors uh, might have something if Paul had just quoted from the Septuagint or or or, yes. or from a more literal translation of the Masoretic text, but he does something interesting there that is a little bit stronger. And then, as you say, he goes on to infer not just. Um, so, so let's turn to verse 18 now. Uh, Paul yeah. goes on to infer not just that um, God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and as he had said earlier, have compassion on whom I have compassion. He takes it yet a step further. There's the escalation that you're talking about. Yep. He not only has mercy on whom he, whomever he wills, but he also hardens whomever he wills. Yep. And one thing that I want to point out about this this uh, thing in verse 18 is that if you go back and look at the early chapters of Exodus, um, where this language of God hardening Pharaoh's heart happens, um, very often non-Calvinists will claim that the, the first one to that is said to harden Pharaoh's heart is actually Pharaoh himself. Um, and they will, they will use that as support for the notion that God is only hardening somebody who has already chosen to harden himself, right? Yeah. But if you actually walk through the Exodus narrative, um, the first hardening that's mentioned is when God tells Moses at the burning bush that you will go talk to Pharaoh, yep. but I will harden his heart. And then the very next time that God, uh, that hardening Pharaoh's heart is mentioned is when Pharaoh is said to harden his heart. In other words, um, Pharaoh hardening his heart is God yeah. hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I think that's really important, but but that's not necessarily either let, here. Let me say something yeah, about that do. real quick. If, if you actually go through and analyze carefully the Hebrew, um, we make a lot of assumptions in that text about what's going on in the English. And uh, so G.K. Beale uh, published an article in the, the Trinity Journal, I think like in the 80s, and um, you, you, you can find it online. And uh, he goes through every instance grammatically of what's going on there in the um, uh, in, in the hardening uh, accounts. And it's very interesting. So in English, it says something like um, uh, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Mm -hmm. And we read that in English and we say, oh, well, that sounds like um, uh, it, it's kind of like this, this um, uh, passive thing and, and it doesn't specify who the who the agent is or, or, or something like that and um, or it'll say the the heart of Pharaoh was hardened right and, and, and so the the link it sounds like it's saying there that Pharaoh hardened his own heart it actually only says that explicitly twice in the whole narrative and um, other than that it, it, the the idea here is that it's telling us the condition of Pharaoh's heart and and this can be spelled out with the grammar with the Paul's use of the of the PL and the, or not Paul's, uh, yeah, Paul, yeah, Paul wrote X, <laughs> yeah, Moses, right. uh, where where he's using the PL and, and the Hiphil stem and, and and you look at the grammar um, and what's going on there is actually there, there really are only a couple times where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and uh, the rest of it, based on what you said, not just at the beginning of the narrative, but at the end where, where we're looking here, like Paul 
uh, Paul reflecting back on it, Moses reflecting back on it. The, the whole point is that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's the big picture point of the text. But even when you drill down into those details, uh, it's a it's a, a, a lot weaker of a case for uh, those who, who want to give priority to Pharaoh's hardening. And, and what I always say is, of course, Pharaoh hardened his heart, right? So um, some prophet from an enslaved people comes and says, you're going to release my, my free uh, workforce because Yahweh says so. And I don't even know who Yahweh is. And I'm the king of, of Egypt, the most you know, powerful nation in the world. Uh, I'm a son of God, and uh, yeah, of course he's going to harden his heart there. But but as the uh, plagues progress and get worse and worse, then God does not allow Pharaoh to do what would have become expedient, which would be to just cut ties and let them go. Things are have gone from bad to worse. But but Pharaoh doesn't have free will in this scenario at all, right? Uh, God God says I'm going to use you to do uh, what what I intend to do. I'm going to make my my uh, power and my my name. Uh, known throughout the world. And that's the point that, that is consistent with what Paul is drawing out of it as well. So I think even when we do careful exegesis in Exodus, it, it's much uh, stronger case for what, what you and I would want to say from it. And if I haven't sent you that article by Beal, I will. Uh, I highly recommend that anybody interested in that look at it. It's, it's pretty technical. It gets into the fine details of Hebrew grammar, but uh, uh, it, it's, it's uh, very compelling. Yeah. No, please do send me that article. Um, and, and, and I was had not read Piper's book. And, and so I'm also going to get that. But uh, just to sort of um, reiterate what I said before returning to Romans, um, here's Exodus 7 that I'm showing up on the screen. And you can see that in verse 3, Yahweh says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The next use is um, uh, later in chapter 7, very same chapter, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So the very yes. first time that God's promise to harden Pharaoh's heart um, back in verse uh, chapter four and then again in, in chapter seven, the very first substantiation or the very first time Pharaoh's heart is hardened in the narrative and not just a, a anticipated uh, predicted in advance is is verse 13 here in chapter seven. So the, the Pharaoh's hardening from start to fin start to finish is ultimately um, Yahweh's uh, yeah. um, action and not. Yes. And, and just to be clear, I, I think you, you said Pharaoh had no free will. I, I I imagine you mean free will in the libertarian sense, right? Because we, yes, yes, of course. yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's return to Romans nine then. And I mean, anything more that you want to say about verse 18, this inference from the, yeah, yeah please do. Yeah. So in, in verse 16, when he drew the inference, it said that, uh, God's choice or God's mercy was was not according to the one who wills or the one who runs, but according to the God who has mercy. Now the inference uh, twice repeats uh, a verbal form, right, of willing, uh, thaleo, and um, or thelo, is it? Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, thelo is the is the lexical form. Um, and uh, he says um, it. Uh, God God. Uh, has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills, right? So it's not according to the human will that conditions God's mercy back in 16. And now he tells us whose will it is according to. And in both places, uh, both uh, mercy and hardening in this inference that Paul is, is drawing out, uh, it is uh, God's will that is primary. And so any reading where we say that the reason why uh, Israel is either hardened or, or a beneficiary of mercy, that, that conditions it on a human act of volition, is missing Paul's point. Paul's point is that it's all about the divine volition here. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and this brings us to verse 19 and the next hypothetical objection. And, you yeah. know, this, this again, even Leighton Flowers uh, acknowledges that what's critical to properly understanding what Paul is saying here in Romans 9 is to understand um, the hypothetical objection that he brings up here in verse 19. And as I said before, I, I, or, or as I tried to explain before, but I think didn't do as good of a job as I'm going to try to do now, I think what Leighton argues is that the objection here on the hypothetical, hypothetical objector's part is... Uh, who can, um, uh, who, who can, who is going to be able to resist God's will to choose from among Gentiles and not merely Israel, um, as if that's somehow unjust. But as you've been pointing out, um, when we get to, as when we get to this point in Paul's argument, the inferences that Paul has been drawing from this, ver these various texts is that it all depends not at all on the human will, but on God's will. And yes. that to me seems like the ex that leads exactly to this hypothetical objection, and I don't see the hypothetical objection that Leighton thinks this is as yeah. something that would naturally flow at all from these appeals that Paul has been making to the Old Testament text. Would you agree? I, I totally agree. And um, here you have, uh, so he uses a different word that the, the English brings over as will, and it's uh, bulema. And uh, what's interesting there is that's also used in Ephesians 1 11, or maybe it's a, a cognate. And uh, here it is his, his uh, purpose or decision or decree. It, this is a term that's used to describe a, a kingly decree. So the objection is that, that God has uh, written something into place that cannot be overturned. And, and so it's wrong for God to, um, uh, to, uh, uh, find fault in us because uh, this is this is the script that he's written and uh, Paul won't allow that right in verse 20 you you have no no uh, basis on which to, to question what what God is at work doing um, but think about it though what Israelite would say well God can't God can't choose uh, one and not the rest. Like, doesn't doesn't his choice of Abraham out of all the families of the earth, uh, you know, uh, fall under that sort of objection as well? You know, uh, God didn't choose all the other nations, but he chose Abraham. So if God did that, why can't God do that in choosing particular sons and, and, and um, you know, again, for his purposes in, in taking his blessing to the nations. I don't think that that argument gets off the ground at all. I think it, it makes a lot more sense, especially based on what we've been seeing uh, to understand that, that they're objecting to uh, God. Again, using the uh, the argument that, that Leighton made uh, appearing arbitrary and, and yet holding them accountable for it. Yeah, I mean, I think Leighton's reading of this hypothetical objection could be plausible if all Paul had appealed to was um, Isaac and Jacob, but he mm -hmm. also appeals to Pharaoh, yes. and that's and that's what really sort of um, uh, it's the apex of this escalation that Paul has been doing. He appeals yep. to Pharaoh, which isn't at all about choosing one people over another. It's about hardening somebody by God's sovereign will, and that is what naturally leads to the hypothetical objection. Yep. Now, in the notes you sent me, you. you make a good point about verse 20 that um paul doesn't you know w when paul had appealed earlier um uh, to to the previous hypothetical objection the the um uh what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part paul appeals to yahweh's actions in history as proof that um uh, that what he inferred was true all right but when we get to 20 his answer to the hypothetical objection isn't well look 
you know, um, at what God has done. I mean, he, he may, he, he does indirectly by quoting the Old Testament, and I'll turn to you for yeah. that in a second. But his first answer is, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? And you make a yeah. good point in the notes you sent me. You said, you asked the question, does Paul here really answer the objection, or does he malign those who would even ask it? Um, how do you respond to that question? Is is Paul answering his question by simply, or is he, is he answering the question by merely maligning somebody who would ask it, or is there something more going on? Yeah, it, it's interesting. There, there's some debate in the in the scholarly literature about whether or not we can call Romans nine a theodicy, and mm. I, I, that that question of theodicy is is one that comes up a lot here because you know one of the real popular um, uh, arguments is that we need to maintain libertarian free will because otherwise we can't you know explain all the all the evil and horrible things that that go on in the world, um, and but. Some scholars will look at what we'll call Romans nine a theodicy, but then they'll look at this and said, that's not justification. That's that's saying that you can't even ask the question. Right. Mm -hmm. like, so. So is Paul interested in giving a theodicy? I I've read arguments on both sides and, and I, I understand where both are coming from. Um, maybe he is and, and he's appealing again. Uh, the background here, the, the, the citation that we get next is um, uh, based on Isaiah twenty nine sixteen and Isaiah forty five nine, where where uh, Yahweh talks about what he's doing with Israel and them saying, um, you know, uh, what, what are you doing? It doesn't look like you're, you're very intelligent. You're, you're a very skillful uh, potter. Uh, why didn't you make me this way, etc.? And and Paul's whole point is that that it's ridiculous that the, the pot should do that. And that's that's the point that that he um, uh, draws out in verse 21, where he says uh, the potter has uh, you get. Uh, the right in some translations, but it's it's exousia, it's authority. The yeah. potter has authority uh, to do what he wants with the clay, making um, some ve one vessel for honorable use. And it and it's interesting. I didn't note this before, but um, here he has a singular, right? So it's it's a vessel singular, either for honor or for dishonor. And we've had singulars throughout the one who wills versus the one who runs versus the God who has mercy, right? Uh, it's interesting that he's using these singulars throughout, telling us that um, he, he is addressing the question of why one Israelite believes and the other doesn't. And again, he keeps coming back to this, this idea of the potter's freedom. He wants to um, uh, mold this clay uh, on the one hand, in some cases, into a vessel for honor, and in other cases, one for dishonor. And again, we get it even more intensified as we go into verses 22 and 23. Yeah. One thing I really like about verse 21 is um, how it lends itself to one of the illustrations I gave in last episode of the show on how election isn't arbitrary in Calvinism because um, the, the way Leighton has characterized verse 21 um, is that God has two things before him and he shapes one of them to be this vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable, dishonorable use. And if that were what was going on, arguably it could be arbitrary precisely because he would be taking two pre-existing things and yeah. shaping them each. But no, this potter analogy is saying there's one thing and the potter rips off a, you know, from that lump of clay and yep. crafts it into a vessel for honorable use and then he rips off another piece and he shapes it for dishonorable use. He's not choosing from among two different things and then just sort of shaping them a little bit differently. He is crafting them from the ground up, from the same yes. lump of, of clay. And I think that's really critical here. Um, it is. 
let, let me say, yeah, follow up on that. So um, the, the article that I published in the Westminster Theological Journal has a big section on the book of Sirach, and it, particularly chapter 33, which I think is a tradition that's influenced Paul's use of this. Uh, it uses the potter clay analogy as well, but it grounds it very explicitly, which Paul doesn't explicitly do here. It grounds it in God's works at creation, right? Hmm. So just as he makes uh, certain days sanctified, holidays and other days common, the text says that, that he does that forming uh, human paths, human destinies uh, at creation. So um, I, I think that is, is very important background. If, if your viewers have a New Revised Standard Version, it, it will have the Apocrypha in it and uh, Sirach, or um, it's sometimes called Ecclesiasticus or the Wisdom of Ben Sirah. Uh, chapter 33, I believe it's verses 7 and following, uh, you can see that. And I think it's pretty clear that that's the, the way Paul is using the, the Potter Clay analogy here. Just out of curiosity, is your Westminster article available online for free, at, or, or, or do people have to subscribe? It, it is if you are like a member of an institution. Usually, you can you can get it on like the library website or something like that. Um, you know, I'm happy to share it. I don't think there are any copyrights being violated when I do. But uh, um, I, do you not do you not have yeah. an academia profile? I think I have one, but I don't think I've ever actually used it. I should just, I should and, and put it on there. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would encourage you to do so. I, I think that's one. You know, I, I've got articles that um that I've gotten a few articles published, and and I don't I never want the stuff I publish to be accessible to only you know a few people yes. in the, in the yes. ivory tower. Um, and so yep. I put them up on my academia profile, uh, and I'd encourage you to do the same. But even if you don't, um, make sure to send me after this the the name of that article you wrote, and I'll okay. I'll, I'll be sure to try to. Um, at Absolutely. least give people the, the details they need to find it. Um, yeah. but, but let me ask you a question before we move on to verse 22. Um, Leighton has very often pointed out that uh, at least in terms of the um, uh, canonical text, Paul is appealing to uh, or quoting from um, an Old Testament text in which God's shaping of these, uh, 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 be, be having the right as a potter over the clay, um, he is actually shaping, his, his choice to shape the clay in the way he does is actually contingent upon the choices or actions of the people that he's shaping. And Leighton has used that as reason to think that Paul isn't using this potter analogy as um, evidence that um, God is unconditionally electing some Jews over others, but rather that God God's election is based first on the actions of the people that he's shaping. Um, how, how would you respond to that? If that's the case, if in Isaiah if, if or Jeremiah, wherever this yeah. potter thing is first used, if that's what God's doing, he's shaping in reaction to what they've done, why should we not assume that that's what Paul is arguing here? Yeah, so that's part of the debate is what the background is. Paul actually explicitly quotes from Isaiah, which the, the point in Isaiah's use of the potter clay analogy is to um, speak of the inscrutability of, of God's purposes for his people. Hmm. Whereas in, in Jeremiah, the, the rhetorical point there is, is also using a different sort of potter clay analogy where a potter can take something that, that uh, isn't doing what it was intended to do and he can, he can mush the clay back up and he can repurpose it and make it into something that works, right? And so Jeremiah's rhetorical point there, that's in Jeremiah chapter 18, um, is to encourage them, hey, don't, don't, you know, stop uh, 
you, you know, don't fail to remember that, that you need to repent and that our God is powerful and, and who knows what's going to happen if you repent, you know? And, and, and so that, that's different though. Uh, again, I, I don't think that's in the background for, for Paul here. I think Paul is, is alluding to what, and if you compare the text, it's not even really a question. Uh, look at Isaiah 29, uh, 16 and 45, nine. It's very clear that that's the background. Paul is kind of, uh, mashed those two together in, in his citation here. And there it is about God's right to do what he wants and and those who are uh, in the analogy, the pots, having no right to question that. And so, um, I, and again, as we've been seeing, um, and as we're going to continue to see, the conditions in all of this are not found in the human beings. That's what Paul has been denying emphatically throughout. That's what he, he just denied uh, in verse 18. Uh, what was it? Yeah. Um, and, and he also denied back in verse 16 is not according to the one who wills, uh, but it's, it's God's will. He mercies and he hardens as he wills. So I, I think that explanation, uh, pretty, uh, apparently pretty transparently gets away from the, the inferences that Paul is drawing out from his own analogies here. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. well, take us then into uh, verse 22. Um, yeah. You know, one of the, um, let, let's start with this this phrase, ADE, um, what if. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, I have heard some non-Calvinists say, uh, in fact, I think that my opponent in my debate book, um, which is, uh, it's off the screen, but people can't see it right now, but um, I think even my opponent in that book made the case uh, or argued that ADE, what if, um, is not expressing something that God will or did has in fact done, but it's just sort of, well, maybe he could have, but, but yeah. he didn't actually, but is that what, what, what does a dare or what if mean as Paul is using it? How, how is it functioning yeah. in what God is or in what Paul is saying? Yeah, I, I think it's it's another marker of of his inference. Of course, it's not using the the formal grammatical forms that we would expect for an inference. It is set up as a um, as sort of a, a rhetorical, you know, conditional question. Uh, but but again, you, you you've got the connections to everything that's come before, and he he's told us God has mercy on whom He wants, and He hardens whom He wants, and that that He is the the Potter with the right to do what He wants with uh, the clay as He sees fit, and it, and it's beyond scrutiny. And so that it's consistent, you know, when, when he cited uh, the story of, of Pharaoh and, and said that God wanted to, to show his power and to uh, make known his name. Well, what do we have here? God willing, again, connecting it back, it's all about God's will uh, to show his wrath and to make known his power. So um, he's not introducing some hypothetical that, oh, God could do it if he wanted to, but we know God's not like that. Now, he, he's, he, he's introducing this as a rhetorical way to say, yeah, this is what God is doing. It's not the end of the story. Get to, to Romans chapter 11, where where uh, for for many, this group called All Israel, that, that hardening is going to be reversed, but, but not not for everybody, unfortunately. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that that works at all. Again, the, the inferences really head that argument off because he's been explicitly telling us his point throughout is God having mercy on who he wants and hardening who he wants. And so, uh, again, I, 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 I doubt that really works. And that's not something you find in the scholarly literature. I don't know of a single uh, exegetical commentary that says that Paul is just being hypothetical and, and really doesn't doesn't think that God is like this. I don't. Right. They, they they do have other interpretations, uh, and there are really good commentaries. Not not all the good commentaries on Romans, you know, lean toward 
towards views like ours. There are really good commentaries from different perspectives, uh, but none of them goes that direction. I, I, I think that's because there's not any good grounds for it. Yeah. Yeah. I take I take the what if here as something more like so what if, you know, Paul yeah. is saying, so what if God desiring to show his wrath, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's not mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe God does this. It's saying, yeah. so yeah. what if this is the what he does? Um, but but and there may be more in this verse that you want to unpack. Definitely. But I know that one yeah. thing that is worth unpacking um, is Paul's use of the um, passive voice here in oh, um, yes. in the word prepared, the, 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 yes. the Greek word. Um, Katartidzo, uh, right? So um, some have argued, as in the notes that you sent me indicate, that this uh, this word prepared isn't actually in the passive voice, it's in the middle voice. Now, I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but for viewers' yeah. sake that aren't familiar with the terrain here, um, in, in English, we have two voices, active and passive. I hit the ball, the verb hit is active. I'm both, I'm the subject of the verb, and the ball is the object of the verb, and the verb is transitive, all right? So that's at the active voice. I hit the ball. But if I said, um, I was hit by the ball, well, now hit is in the passive voice. I'm the subject, but I'm also the one on uh, upon whom the action is being made. Yep. Greek, however, has this, this third voice that's called the middle voice, which is something like um, a, a, the person being both the subject and the object of the verb. You know, it, it's, it's acting in some way upon oneself. Yeah. And one of the reasons, or one of the unfortunate things about certain tenses in Greek is that in some tenses, not all tenses, but in some tenses of Greek, the, the passive and the middle voice are identical in form. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and that's the case here. If this were a middle voice, uh, they prepared themselves for destruction. Um, it would look identical if it's, if it's in one of those tenses. Um, it, it would look identical to the passive voice. They were prepared for yes. destruction. Um, how do you respond to the claim, uh, if, if many people make it, that this is actually middle and not passive? Um, and, and what would be the, the, the significance of it being passive? Um, why, for example, doesn't he say um, God prepared them for destruction? Why yeah. does he say they were prepared for destruction? Talk to us about that. Yeah, this is a really important point. So uh, as you said, um, uh, formally, it could be construed as either a middle or a passive. Uh, but if you actually look again, I, I'm appealing to the scholars you go into guys like like James Dunn or um, uh, uh, Cranfield's commentary on Romans, neither of them holds to a Calvinist interpretation of this text. Uh, even Ben Witherington, who's who's a, a Wesleyan Arminian. Um, and, and what you'll see is, is they'll point out that, no, this is definitely a passive. And the reason why they do that, um, probably the, the quickest place you could go look is, is uh, Dan Wallace's uh, Greek grammar, because he's, he's got a section on this. Uh, this verb, especially in the perfect tense as it is in, uh, is never used in the New Testament as a middle. Hmm. And um, even if it was a middle, the middle doesn't just mean um, I hit myself, as you said. Uh, it, it, it can just express the idea of uh, self-interest, right? So you get that in, in the verb exalexita in uh, Ephesians. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, the idea is he chose us for himself, right? So more often the middle voice doesn't even have that reflective uh, sense that, that is sometimes assumed that it is. And and really this, it's it's kind of a case of uh, special pleading here because they, they want them to have fixed themselves for this destruction. Um, but but then you, you you asked a really important question: Why the shift? Why why would we have the passive in this line, um, but in, in the next line, uh, the active voice with God as the subject? And and what the passive can do for us? The the reason why there. Uh, we have this here is uh, it does create some some asymmetry here. So they're not exactly uh, parallel in every perfect way. In both instances, God is the ultimate agent. That's the point of the analogy. God is the potter. He fixes these vessels. We're still talking about vessels. They're vessels of wrath, which is a um, a genitive of destination. They're 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 on a collision course for wrath, and they're being prepared for destruction. Which I I know you like that it uh, it says that right there. Um, and um, uh, you know, thinking of your, uh, you know, the conditional immortality debates, um, and 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 so um, the 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 ends there is is what's emphatic. But um, the reason why Paul would use a passive in one case with God as the ultimate agent is is to say that 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 there is responsibility here. They do deserve judgment. We all deserve judgment. Paul said, "All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Um, and so uh, the, the there are conditions here being met that 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 make that uh, different from those who God prepares uh, for glory. There, there are no conditions, Paul has been saying throughout, that, that warrant um, uh, why uh, one vessel is going to experience uh, mercy and glory, uh, but there are reasons why um, uh, there is culpability, there is responsibility uh, in the uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And so I, I think that's the reason why you you have the change of voice there. And again, um, there there is no... Uh, there, I don't know. There, I believe there's like one scholarly article that was published in the not too distant past that tried to argue that this is the middle voice, but nobody, even Arminian um, authors, have uh, followed him there. The the evidence is is very very strong, and this is what I would say. If I were an Arminian, what I would do is something that the the middle participle can do is tell us about a condition, um, and what it would mean is that these are vessels which are prepared for wrath, and then. It, say, well, it leaves open the question of who the agent of the preparation is, and we have to fill that in by context. Then I would say, well, the context is God as the potter, so he, he's clearly the agent. They would say, well, they deserved it because they didn't believe. That's better than trying to say that it is grammatically a middle voice. There's there's mm -hmm. really no good uh, scholarly grounds for that. Yeah. Well, and you make a good point, which is that um, it, it would make perfect sense if we were reading Paul rightly, that, um, that he would use uh, that he would use the active voice and explicitly call out God as the agent of preparation for glory in verse 23, because he wants yeah. to make absolutely clear that there's no, uh, th those so prepared ought not to uh, boast in, in as much, you know, they, they have yes. no reason for, yes. um, they're not at all um, responsible for their being prepared hand beforehand yes. for glory. Whereas yes. those prepared for destruction are responsible um, and, and, uh, uh, and deserving of destruction. Um, okay, so hey, real quick, could yeah. I make one more point? So, 
Um, and, and then it, if they're looking at your propositional outline, uh, which again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not seeing again, we've oh, been sorry. having some technical difficulties. That's okay. So, uh, you get two markers of purpose that in verse 22, which your, your viewers can see on the left, and those are both infinitives, right? So, uh, God willing to, uh, show his wrath and to make known his power two infinitives of purpose. Uh, but then you get another marker of purpose, which is verse 23, uh, where you have a, a henna clause. And, and I think that's telling because it, it places the emphasis there for us. So um, th those initial signs of purpose are ultimately um, uh, making way for God to show the riches of his glory on vessels of wrath prepared for glory. So the, the henna clause, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory, that tells us what's what's ultimate in God's aim here. And so when we, what, however we present our view holding to unconditional election, I think we need to put the emphasis there where Paul does. Uh, God God's ultimate aim is is to, to share that glory with these uh, vessels of mercy. So, uh, anyways, I, I think that's just a point of emphasis that, that we should highlight here. Very good. Um, anything else in verses 23 or 24 that you want to cover before we turn to Paul's uh, appeal to Hosea? Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So getting in in verse 24 to the appeal to Hosea, you've got that that language of calling again. And, and um, uh, it happens in a relative uh, clause. It's in apposition to the vessels of mercy. You could tell because it's it's also a, a, an accusative plural. Th those whom he have whom he has called are the vessels of wrath uh, prepared for glory, and that tells us that they're prepared. No, for glory. not the vessels of uh, wrath prepared for glory. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> vessels of mercy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. So they're the ones who have been called, and so they they are so prepared on the basis uh, of God's calling and uh now now he's bringing in jews and gentiles so this anticipates some of the things that he's going to say later in chapter 11 where um gentiles are incorporated into uh the the vine and and um uh part of this uh olive tree i should say um but um we, we we've got that language of calling again and that, as you said in in verses uh 25 and 26 he cites two passages from hosea which are about um god creating out of people who are not his people his people and so i think this has double application for paul this 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 uh begins to anticipate what he's going to say in uh chapter 11 where he's where he believes that god is going to reverse israel's condition and save all israel and i don't universalize that i think it's a as i'll make the point later it's it's in terms of a remnant of those who currently do not believe um but um uh he's also talking about the gentiles they are not his people and and they've been made his people they are not his beloved they're they're brought into the uh, family. He says they will be called sons of the living God. And so that's from uh, Hosea 2.23 and 1.10, if memory serves. Yeah. So, uh, but it's more language about God's call being creative. God creates his people by his call. God creates vessels of mercy by his call. Again, it, it, it's it's uh, reiterating what we've seen uh, throughout the entire uh, chapter. 
You know, one thing I'll add there, and, and there's too much here to um, substantiate in, in any detail um, in the time we've got, but um, I have, I'm particularly interested in the way Paul is using Hosea here because of my um, difference of opinion, probably, probably even with you about um, who I, who Israel is in Paul's mm -hmm. thinking here, um, but that's neither here nor there. But, but, the, but because of my interest in, in Hosea here, I, I happen to recall that um, this, this passage in Hosea that, that Paul is quoting from, those who were not my people, I will call my people, this is actually, um, at least in Hosea's writing, um, this is the, um, the, the people who were called not my people are not Gentiles in Hosea's yes. book. Yes. It's, actually, it's actually Israel. <laughs> so, yes. so faithless Israel um, yes. are, are called not my people in Hosea. Yes. And it's and and God is declaring, I will call them my people in the very place that I called them not my people. Yeah. Now we can in another conversation we might sure. discuss um, to what that means as far as um, yeah. uh, the Gentiles are concerned. Yeah. But but the interesting thing is in that context. Um, it's not, at least as far as I can tell, it's not merely the prediction that faithless Israel will one day become faithful again and therefore God will call them my people again. Rather, it's because God is intending to once again call them his people yep. that, they, that, they are, that they return to faithfulness. Yeah, so, um, so in the in the um, in the analogy, God is like Hosea, who continues to go after his adulterous wife, and eventually he's going to see to it that that he wins them over. Not right. you know, and, and and here it's a, it's according to his call, right? And so I think it does double duty. I think it it refers to again Paul saying that um, you know in, in chapter eleven um, he, he he talks about how they are consigned over to disobedience and they're enemies of the gospel right now, and they're the ones who he is going to have mercy on. So I, I, I think um, it anticipates that, but it also does say that, because uh, he said it very explicitly, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. They are also not my people, and they're brought in in accordance with the call. So um, I, th I think it does double duty for Paul. I, um, I, I'd love to chat with you about that, because I, I think I could I, I don't even know your view exactly, but if it's different from mine, I bet I could convince you to to move over at least a little bit my direction. But uh, may, maybe we're closer than we realize on that. But we'll, we'll have to uh, go down that road sometime. Yeah, we'll talk about it after my debate. Uh, and and, and um, shameless plug for those of you watching right now, I will be debating Steve Gregg, uh, another fellow professor at uh, Trinity College, um, on the identity of Israel in the new covenant context in a week and a half. Oh, wait. You know, now that I think about it, this is going to air. What you and I are discussing right now is going to air after that debate. So, okay. uh, viewers, if you haven't already, go to Trinity Radio uh, YouTube channel and, and watch the debate between Steve Gregg and I. And after that debate, Robert, then you and I can talk about this yeah. more and you could persuade me. Um, uh, arguably, uh, you'll be able to persuade me. But anyway, um, okay, so... Uh, so, so Paul is here um, substantiating that, continuing to substantiate that um, that God is the active agent in all of this. It's it's He who will one day say, "You are my people," to the very people He had previously said, "You are not my people," and it's because of that that they uh, become faithful again. And, and Paul is appealing to that in verse twenty six, and then he turns in verse twenty seven to Isaiah again, and it's here yes. that you think um, there is a 
subtle um, imperfection or deficiency in many English translations, yes. because the Greek uh, connection here is the conjunction de, um, and the English translation, at least in the ESV, is the word and, but and doesn't, it doesn't it very often doesn't capture the nuance of de, the, the Greek yeah. conjunction de there. So unpack that for us and, and, and why you think that's important. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Chris, as you said, there are uh, some issues that I have with the translation here. Uh, first is that you have um, the, the um, introduction of this new section with de, which is brought over in like the ESV as typical with and, but based on what we see previously where Paul is citing uh, positively uh, Hosea, he introduces both of those with, with the word chi, which is normally translated and. Uh, here he introduces it with de, which uh, I think following on those two chi's suggests to us that it should be understood as an adversative. So uh, the idea is even though this everything that's come before uh, has happened with Israel and, and God's calling has has limited the number of ethnic Israelites who are among the, the, the true children of Abraham, heirs of the promise, um, there, there's something else, there's something more in store. But he says Israel, uh, or excuse me, but um, Isaiah is is uh, crying out. And, and that's another place where we have a problem. Uh, the ESV has concerning, which would normally be a translation of the Greek preposition peri, but uh, Paul actually wrote huper. And huper means something like on behalf of. So, so I, Isaiah is like Paul in the sense that um, uh, Isaiah is lamenting Israel's condition in his day, just as Paul is lamenting here and, and as Moses had done uh, going back to Exodus 32 through 34. Uh, then you get another uh, error in the translation where it, it begins the quotation as though uh indicating a concessive idea like even though there's this huge number only it says a remnant will be saved uh, but in reality uh, there is no though there there's actually a uh, conditional um, marker here on so the idea would be if the number is so great and here I think he's talking about the number of the sons of Israel these unbelieving Israel um, not only a remnant will be saved there is no word corresponding to only in the Greek that is in, inferred by the uh, translators and I think wrongly inferred. Uh, what he's saying is that um, there's this huge number of unbelieving Israelites like like the sands of the sea uh, but uh, a remnant of them will certainly be saved and that's anticipating what Paul is going on to uh, say at the end of, of chapter 11 and part of the basis for this is if you look at uh, the quotation in uh, verse 28 as it continues uh, he's got this this uh, pair of participles um, tied together by another chi so sum telon chi sum temnon and and there uh, that expression that the, the author who um, I, I'm not sure if I referenced before or not uh, Paul Heil H-E-I-L yeah, uh, John Paul Heil um, he shows that if, if you look at the background here, that th this is an, an idiom or an expression that means um, he will certainly or definitively uh, carry forth what, what he is determined to do. So this is like almost decretive language. Um, I, I, I believe the um, 
uh, Christian Standard Bible has uh, something like definitively deciding, right? So this is the idea that, that God's purpose isn't going to be thwarted for Israel. And and again, that's the conclusion that I think we we come to in uh, chapter 11. And, and that's indicated, I think, by this citation uh, from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 9, that the, the Lord of hosts uh, has preserved a remnant. If he had not left uh, us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Amor. We would have been wiped off the face of the earth, um, completely eradicated. But God, um, as as the prophet Isaiah depicted, he certainly carry out what he is determined to do with Israel. Uh, but it's not, again, everything that's come before, it's not based on conditions that we will meet. It's based on the fact that he has definitively decided that he will do so. He has mercy as he has mercy. Uh, the text says that he's, uh, uh, chapter 11, that he's consigned all, I think that's all Israel, this, this group that Paul's referring to, over to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on them all. God is going to do something effectual to, to reverse Israel's fortunes uh, in the future uh, after the time when this group called the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So I think this is important, and I hope I expressed it clearly uh, because my ideas here are derivative of, of that article. I think he made a really compelling case. Uh, it, it is, uh, like I said, a preview of coming attractions. It, it, it tells us uh, that God is certainly going to carry out uh, what he had always determined he would do with Israel, despite her current condition. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that God's plans have failed. The word of God has not fallen, Paul said in, in verse 6, uh, but uh, it is going to happen exactly as God determines that it will happen. And so I think you get another deterministic theme here with regard to the future mercy of Israel, anticipating what's going to come in chapter 11. Yeah, very good. Um, I, I, before we wrap things up, though, I want to yeah. briefly talk about these last three verses in Romans 9, because okay. um, I can anticipate, I mean, I, I suspect yeah. that Leighton and, and others would look at these last verses in Romans 9 and suggest that they actually challenge the reading that we have thus far offered, because Paul yeah. goes on to ask, what shall we say then? Um, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is righteousness that is by faith, so far so good. But then it says, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as yes. if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So it, I can imagine why somebody like Leighton would read that and say, it sure sounds like what Paul is saying is that uh, to to um, anticipate the language that we'll read in Romans 11 about being the natural branches being broken off of the tree, it seems mm -hmm. as if Paul is saying that the reason that the Jews have been broken off of the tree here uh, in these last verses of Romans 9 is because of what they willed, or more yes. precisely, what they did yes. not will. Namely, they did not yes. will to pursue it by faith. They instead willed to pursue righteousness by works. Um, yeah. how, how would you address that challenge if it were leveled at you? Did, how, how, how do yeah. these final verses in Romans nine support or at least are that how are they consistent with the reading that we've thus far offered rather than challenge it yes yeah, so there there are a number of things we would say so uh 9 30 through um close to the end of chapter 10 form a section where paul paul reverts back to his discussion of righteousness and faith which we haven't had up to this point in chapter nine we've been focused on mercy and and calling and um uh, uh you know election terminology and so um 
we we made the point that there's there's um, some incongruity in the in the assignment of vessels for destruction versus those for glory, right? So that there there is culpability there, there is responsibility there. They did fail to believe, right? Um, but uh, everything we've been seeing, uh, ultimately, God's agency has been emphatic. And what I would say is, if if you're going to use this to invalidate everything we've said up to this point, and we've only talked about Greek grammar, <laughs> I would love to to follow up and talk about um, Second Temple Judaism and, oh, yeah. and dig more more deeply into Paul's um, uh, uses of the Old Testament there, because there's there's a lot more that's that's telling that that I think um, uh, makes our case even stronger. Um, but so now he brings up this this issue they they have failed to believe, right? So they're absolutely responsible, but. Um, Again, he's anticipating God overcoming their failure to believe. We just we just saw there. He's gonna save a remnant. He's gonna have mercy on those who currently do not believe. But but flash forward to chapter at the end of chapter ten, uh, verse nineteen, where um, or verse eighteen. So. Um, he, he talks about how they, they need to hear the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by uh, the word of Christ. And um, that, that we, you know, uh, this is partly a, a, a call to continuing the, the mission to the, the Jewish people, which, which Paul supports in, in uh, the book of Romans. Uh, but he says in verse 18, uh, I'm going to read from English here since it's on the fly. Uh, but I ask, have they not heard? He says, indeed they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth. So they've already heard, right? And he says, uh, verse 19, uh, but I asked, did Israel understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And it's interesting that he says first, protos. Uh, Moses, there, there's something that God um, had planned to do first before Israel responded to that message of the gospel that they heard. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then he says, um, uh, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Well, what do you mean did not seek me? They did seek him, right? They believed. Israel didn't seek them. No, no, no. Uh, Paul, again, is saying no one seeks God, go, going back to chapter uh, 3 in the in the citation. So um, God has set things up. He's, already, he, he's quickly getting back to that. God has set things up to make Israel jealous. Uh, her failure to believe is in accordance with what God had already spoken uh, through Moses. He has shown himself to those who did not ask for him. The gospel has come to the Gentiles, and it's come effectually through God's call and through God's mercy. And yet, in spite of that, even though God is using Israel uh Provoking her jealousy, creating anger in her, and and hardening her in disobedience, God holds out His hand. I have uh, all day long. I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And I think that's Paul's way of saying Israel's story isn't over. God has saved a remnant now, and He will save a remnant of those effectually who do not believe by extending mercy to them according to His call, as He isn't currently doing. Because again, His purpose—that's what we've seen ultimately through Romans chapter nine. His purpose is to reveal Himself to the world to to bring in the full number of the Gentiles. So, um, I, I I get the argument. I think that's the best argument that can be made is, is to say, oh well, according to to nine thirty through. Uh, most of chapter 10, uh, we're, we're going back to righteousness, which is conditioned by faith. They didn't meet that condition. They didn't believe. But um, that that is sandwiched between so much. And uh, I think I think Paul, um, when we get to the end of chapter 10, uh, clues us in that that their unbelief is even part of God's design to to again send send the gospel out into the whole.
whole world and to, to call in a people from among the Gentiles, ultimately to reverse the hardening of, of a remnant, all Israel, and, and bring them into the faith effectually. So yeah. that, no, that's how I would respond. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And, and it seems to me that um, what that objection assumes is that this um, this this marker, you know, we've been talking about markers, this marker yeah. at the beginning of verse 30, Te'un uh, Erumen, um, you know, what therefore shall we say? Um, yes. It assumes that that is a marker uh, an indication that Paul is summarizing what he has just said throughout Romans 9, but in which case the objection might be more weighty than you and I would say it is. But this yeah. seems to me to be more more transitionary into yes. the next things that Paul wants to talk about. Um, so he's not saying, based on everything that I've just said, therefore we conclude that uh, Israel failed to pursue righteousness by faith. Rather, he's transitioning into a discussion of righteousness by faith. Um, and, and as such, these verses don't inform what, yes. uh, what, what Paul has just been concluding from his, or inferring from his appeals to Old Testament text. Does that seem about right? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, that we we want to emphasize their responsibility as well. You know, so uh, there, there's no question about that. They have failed to believe. But Paul tells us time and time again that um, it, throughout this text that, that even that is ultimately explainable through divine agency. So, um, I you know, it, it, I get the temptation to, you know, to want to... Um, apologize for that i don't mean that pejoratively but to but to you know kind of find uh you know different ways that don't seem arbitrary that don't that don't raise those questions that that uh the objector raised in in chapter nine but i think those were raised because uh as paul concludes chapter 11 uh that there is mystery to this it's it's stunning the way god has done this and and uh who can who can understand it who can who can plumb its depths and and counsel god nobody uh what do we do we worship him yeah. We worship him, you know, so I think that's the point. Okay, very good. Well, as a way to start to wrap things up, um, you know, we, we've got into the nitty gritty details. We, we've, we've gone into the weeds. Let, let's zoom out again and, and just summarize for us based on everything we've said thus far. In a nutshell, um, just to, to what extent does Romans 9 support the Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election? Um, yeah. what, what do you think we can confidently say about that? So in wrapping things up, I would I would go back to the inferences that, that we've been highlighting throughout. And uh, you get those again, in, uh, especially emphatically in verses uh, 16 and 18, where, where Paul is really summarizing uh, major points that, that he's drawing out of these texts. And in verse 16, again, he says that uh, it is not according to the one who wills or the one who works, but on the God who has mercy. And that, that he's, he's drawn out, um, having already uh, undermined uh, systems of, of, of worth that, that humans establish, such as primogenitor in the case of God choosing a younger son uh, instead of the firstborn, and, uh, and even more strongly in the case of God choosing uh, Jacob rather than Esau equals who were, who were born of the uh, same act of conception. Um, the human will is not a condition either. It's not according to uh, worth. It's not according to works. And according to verse 16, it is not according to the one who wills. It's according to the one who has mercy, the God who has mercy. And and, and that's the point that Paul uh, makes even more emphatically again in verse 18. God uh, has um, mercy on whom he wants and he hardens 
whom he wants. Uh, every time we see positively this language of the will, it's the divine will. His will can't be resisted. His will uh, mercies and hardens as as he sees fit. And I think when we when we put the focus there, we're we're seeing what what Paul's point uh, was and in, in all that he uh, had to say. God's purpose according to election is not maintained by any act of the human will. It's not maintained, of course, by works, as Paul said so emphatically throughout Romans. And it's not uh, because they are, are are more worthy. Paul really undermines that in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with his his discussion of election and calling there, uh, God ch choosing the the knots uh, in order to confound uh, those who have, you know. So all that to say, um, when, when we get here and we talk about God's calling and God's mercy, it's free in every sense of the word. It's uncoerced. It's unconditioned. Um, nobody can make a claim on it. Uh, but uh, Paul has uh, in, in that a uh, a great cause for worship, and he thinks in the case of Israel, uh, God is not yet done with them, and um, there, there's more to look forward to in uh, in, in God's mercy in that regard. But uh, all that gives us uh, some really strong ammunition for building up a, a, a doctrine of unconditional election. Very good. Um, so I want to ask you for uh, some resources here. Firstly, um, what would you recommend for viewers who want to uh, have the best resource available to them for uh, for a treatment of Romans 9 from our perspective? Where would you recommend yeah. that people turn? So if, if you have some competence in Greek, uh, John Piper's monograph, uh, The Justification of God, I think is still the standard from that from that perspective, but it is very technical. Uh, he, I, I really think if you haven't done a year of Greek, you're going to have a hard time uh, working through some parts of it. Uh, but he's very careful. He's very thorough. Uh, it, it's very helpful. You don't have to agree with absolutely every argument that he makes, but you're going to want to because he's he's again he leaves uh, no stone unturned. Um, I would say something a little more neutral but conducive to our view is the the book by John Barclay that I just mentioned. He's got a big, thick book. Um, I think I have it right here. Okay, yeah, this one, uh, uh, Paul and the Gift. Um, and it's it's made huge waves among uh, uh, scholars on Paul. It's regarded probably as, in my opinion, the, the best book ever written on Paul's uh, theology of grace. And he's got a really great section on Romans 9 to 11. He doesn't go as far as you and I would want him to go, but he says a lot there that that uh, makes a strong case, um, you know, moving towards uh, the way that we're reading the text. Um, other than that, there's some great commentaries, uh, less technical. I just recently came across David Peterson's uh, little commentary on Romans and uh, his treatment on nine is really great because he's, he's very to the point. Um, and he, he draws out uh, out the good stuff, but there's always uh, Doug Moo's, you know, big thick commentary. I've got them both here. And if you compare the two, they're, they're, uh, they're very different, but um, th those are the places that I would go. And um, I, I really like the balance though of Piper and Barclay, because I think um, sometimes, as I said at the beginning, we're, we're a little guilty of, of reading too much of our system into Romans 9. And I think that balance will help you have a little bit of integrity and in, in not, uh, you know, building too much of your case on the foundation of Romans 9. It helps, but but it doesn't get us all the way there. And okay. uh, ho hopefully this, this will be helpful for people who don't have 
uh, background in Greek. Uh, that's what you know. Chris and I we we talked about wanting to do was uh, make this accessible. So uh, hopefully we succeeded in that to try to not get get uh, too too technical. But yeah. it, it's important stuff. So yeah, very good. Uh, and then lastly, in terms of resources, um, let's let's move out of Romans nine and even out of Paul uh, specifically to Scripture as a whole. If you wanted to point viewers to the best resource defending unconditional election from all of scripture um is there a particular resource or author um that you would recommend uh i i still like that collection of essays uh still sovereign i think that's that's pretty helpful uh are you familiar with that one i'm not uh, i think it's edited by thomas schreiner and bruce yep. ware that's yeah right. and and they um it's a collection of essays that you know, it's got a really good one on the question of of what it means to foreknow, uh, for instance, that I can remember off the top of my head. Not all essays in a collection of essays are created equally, so uh, that's not a plug for for every one of them. But I still think that's probably the best resource. I'm looking over here at my at my bookshelf to see if there's something else that I I, I would recommend in in that way. But um, that's that's probably where I would go. Um, I, I don't know anything else that brings that together. The the essay on on uh, the Gospel of John is really good in that one as well. So uh, that'd be a good place to uh, to look. Awesome. Well, I've really appreciated all the time that you've spent with me today. I know you've put a lot of work into preparing for this, and um, I, I do definitely want to have you on again in the future to follow up on Paul's use of the Old Testament and the intertestamental literature and stuff like that. Uh, but I think this has been a great introduction for my audience into unconditional election, especially as a follow-up to my last episode where I discussed whether it's arbitrary, uh, and I look forward to talking to you more about it in the future. Thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I hope it, it proves helpful. So. I think it will. Good. All right. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I enjoyed interacting with you guys in the chat while it was ongoing. And I know it was a bit of a long interview, but, um, you know, we dove deeply into the Greek and we wanted to make it a resource to which people could return um, when they are exploring this topic on their own. And so I think we accomplished that well. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what's going to come up in future episodes of Theapologetics. Uh, firstly, yes, Jamie, this now is live. I'm actually talking to you right now. Um, so two weeks from today will be um, October 5th, Monday, October 5th. And at 6 p.m. on Monday, October 5th, on the next episode of The Apologetics, um, we'll be looking at the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 24, 34. I think it's Matthew 24, 34, in which he says, This generation shall not pass away before all these things take place. I'll be introducing you, my audience, to uh, the topic of preterism. And for those of you who might be afraid of that word, no, I'm not talking about hyperpreterism or so-called full preterism. I'm talking about orthodox preterism, historic preterism, um, preterism full stop, as it should be. Um, I'm sorry, Shannon, I can't give you one every week because every other week I'm doing Rethinking Hell Live. So um, tune into Rethinking Hell Live on alternating Mondays and you'll still get excellent content just on a much more narrow topic. Anyway, so two weeks from today, again, October 5th, Monday, 6 p.m., um, tune in for a treatment of this generation shall not pass away before all these things take place in Matthew 24, 34 for an introduction to preterism. And then two weeks after that, which will be October 
19th will be an, uh, an entirely pre-recorded episode because my wife and I and our family will be uh, returning that very day from a week and a half or two week long trip out of town. Um, and I won't be in t uh, here in time to uh, to do The Apologetics live, but I will have an episode recorded in advance and I'm really excited about it. And I think it's going to be a real meaty, deep, challenging episode because what I'm going to be doing is having my friend Isaiah Burridge on, whom I mentioned in the introduction to this episode of the show. He's going to be joining me as will his wife, Megan, because uh, they he is a um, somebody who's fighting cancer and has had a heart transplant early on in his life. Um, and at times it has been um, seeming as if it may be terminal. Thank God right now it doesn't appear that way. Um, but he and his wife are going to be joining us to discuss the relationship between this kind of real extreme suffering and trial, the relationship of that to um, sovereign, the, the sovereignty of God, you know, uh, the Calvinism, non-Calvinism debate and to theodicy. So we'll be discussing such issues as how do we reconcile the reality of natural evils like cancer with... Um, with the truth of God's goodness and uh, and how do we um, what is the best theodicy to explain that and and ha and does Calvinism um, make the issue of things like cancer worse or better more tolerable so I think that's going to be really interesting as well and I hope you'll tune in and hopefully between now and then I will publish the first installment of a um, a separate series of videos that I'm intending to call the apologetics extra um, these will be much shorter entirely pre-recorded episodes of the show um, on uh, very specific topics and I think that I or what I'd like to do before I go on vacation is publish the first episode of the apologetics extra and we'll be looking at Romans 8, uh, 28 or 29, whichever one it is in which, when it, in which Paul says, those whom God foreknew, uh, the verb is prognosco, and uh, my friend and fellow professor at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary thinks that that word prognosco there, normally translated foreknew, actually means new formerly. Like it's a reference to Israelites of the past that God knew back then before now. Uh, and I'm going to be putting that reading to the test. So there's a lot of uh, interesting content coming up, I think, in upcoming weeks of, uh, for The Apologetics. But don't forget, as I uh, announced at the beginning of the show, that this coming Friday, 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern, I'll be delivering a lecture on the topic of hell for South African Theological Seminary. And um, just Google that or rewind back to the beginning of the show to get that link. Um, and, oh yeah, and do consider signing up for the Rethinking Hell Conference, which is coming up in just about a month and a half. I think it's going to be really great stuff. RethinkingHellConference.com But anyway, uh, again, I'll just leave you with this. Please do come back two weeks from today, Monday, October 5th at 6 p.m. Pacific, where we'll dig into the fun topic of eschatology, um, namely the debate between... Um, premillennialists on the one hand and preterists like me on the other hand as we tackle the subject uh, we, we tackle the topic um, we, we, we try to figure out what Jesus meant when he said this generation shall not pass before all these things take place so until then take care and thank you so much for joining me for this episode of The Apologetics bye bye I've been your host Chris Date and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics where we think together through what we believe why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. 
Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then... <laughs>